episode 20. Holy shit, we made it. It is so funny. (laughs) Live and almost legal. (laughs) And you know what? Things do continue to go on the up and up. 21, we can be together. Man, I don't know, dude. (laughs) I'm still really paranoid. (laughs) Immunocompromised problems. No, Um, I Oh, but hey, it's it's officially May, so it's Lupus Awareness Month. Yes. So that's, that's kind of a big deal, uh, for me at least. Um, let's see, how long has it been now? I guess I was diagnosed, this year will be seven years. Yeah. In December, that I got diagnosed with lupus after a year and a half of multiple misdiagnoses. Is that the right plural? Yes. Diagnosis. Okay. Um, and yeah, man, uh, I, I even forgot, like, again, I'm just like everyone else in the world. I think it's in the sense that I don't really keep up with the days anymore. I don't really know what day it is. Like I know today's Friday because SmackDown was on <laughs> and I know when Monday is because raw will be on. And, <laughs> um, but yeah, today I, I was like, oh, it's May 1st. Yay. We're going to see that stupid in sync meme for fucking 24 hours. And then lupus awareness like popped up on my feed. And I was like, oh, right. That too. (laughs) So um, 2020 has just been a a brain fart like so far. You know what I mean? Oh, God, Um, yeah. And then, you know, 20 years later, we're going to look back and it's just going to be like this fucking skid mark of a shit stain. But. Anyway, um, <laughs> how are you? I'm good. Um, you know, unfortunately, I have to keep up with the days of the week just because, you know, lots of work and everything. School things. <laughs> yeah. But I did forget. Um, I got my days mixed up this week. And for whatever reason, I thought Thursday was Wednesday and it was just a whole cluster. Um, but I will say that this week was the first week that I feel like I was productive with my job. Good. It only took six weeks. Well, okay, that's good. So, I mean, that yeah, it was an adjustment. <laughs> um, but that's good. So you're finding a groove now? Yeah, yeah. I feel like everyone is. Everyone knows, like, all right, this is our norm. We got to, you know, just roll with it. And um, this week was pretty, pretty um, – you know, successful. And you only have to do it for a couple more weeks, right? Because I guess school, quote unquote, will be out soon. Yes, our last day is May 28th. Gotcha. So, Are you excited? <laughs> um, only if I'm going to be able to, like, travel and do stuff. Hmm, yeah. I, I was telling my cousin, because my cousin is moving from Vegas back to Houston. Uh, oh, okay. And she, so she, she'll make the move at the end of May. And so we were talking about summer and I was like, oh, wow, now I can actually be excited for summer because I haven't bothered making any plans because right. in my head, it's going to be November and we're still going to have to be at like maybe 50% capacity in some cases. I don't know how the curve is going to go. Right. That's what I'm worried about. Right. And so, so I was telling her like, well, at least I know I can like like probably see you during the summer, but like maybe flying to Vegas was no longer going to be an option, but now it doesn't really have to be. Um, 
But aside from that, like, I'm still seeing, like, summer festivals are getting canceled. ROH just canceled all of their summer events. And so, like, people are already anticipating that June is not going to be any more normal than things have been. Um, and so it's it's hard to it's hard to think futuristically right now uh because everything is just so day by day yeah um especially with the numbers going up and down and fluctuating um but yeah i mean for the sake of just taking a breather i hope that yeah you, you know you will be able to get to travel i mean you guys i don't know you guys could at least take a road trip or something that's what i want camping camping yeah. we weren't doing anything big anyways i wanted to just do some road trips like to go to some state parks and you, you should know, go to hamilton pool yes okay so those are things that i wanted to do like i wanted to go to wimberley to go to jacob's well and you know things like that so like very texas based so at least i know texas is reopening so i guess you know that's a win um you know pending how everything goes after may 1st it's reopened yeah right um i mean i feel like everyone who i saw out today was masked and gloved and you know maintaining distance like i think everyone is taking it serious for what i see out um and I know that restaurants, like I said, we typically go eat somewhere, like we bring it back to the house on Fridays, but I saw like, while restaurants are opening up, like I saw a Mexican restaurant that yes, they're open, but you bring your own chairs and you sit outside, kind of like a patio style, like a okay. So, and I thought that was really cute. And I know um, Angel mentioned that another restaurant was doing that, but you could, they had like a giant projector screen. So you sat, you ate by the back of your car and watched a movie, which I thought was super cute also, you know, just being creative in times like this and um, still maintaining distance. And I think from, from what I've seen, most people are cautious and, you know, are really trying to make sure that we do keep our numbers down. Mm -hmm. So that's a positive. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess as long as people are taking precautions, then hopefully like, everything will be a somewhat controlled environment, I guess. Right. You know, that doesn't mean um, stop washing your hands, guys. Wash your hands. Right. No. Yes, please. Lysol. Oh. Germ out. <laughs> I, I never leave the house and I'm constantly washing my hands. Like, I really, because <laughs> I'm like, what if it's already inside? There's some shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like keys or mail. You just never know. It's true. It's true. Um, yeah, you have to be super cautious. Um, but, uh, so... Uh, moving on. I think we can get into it now. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover? Nope, I'm good. Okay. Um, all right. So, uh, hey guys, welcome to our 20th episode of Soundtrack Z. <laughs> oh, we're 20. We are 20. Um, and yeah, I'm just going to go out with it. I, I didn't even try to find a clue for my movie. I felt like every photo that I found or every little screenshot that I could think of was like a dead giveaway. Um, I feel like this movie has a very distinct color palette, a very distinct mood, and it comes across in every frame of this film. This is such a beautiful and sad movie. And the reason I chose this movie is because for me, it's kind of mood right now. Like, yeah, we spent the last few episodes trying to be optimistic about the whole pandemic and we're trying to like look at the upside and the whole silver lining of things. But to be honest, like things suck. Like yeah, that's true too. Like 
everything is really fucking lame right now. Um, and like, you know, some of us can't see our friends. Some of us can't see our family. Some of us had to cancel plans, travel, like, you know, some of us, you know, are working at a lesser capacity or not at all. It fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm not going to pretend that everything is, um, guaranteed going to be okay because we've already discussed that, like, it cannot go back to normal. Normal was the problem. So. I just, I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I want to get into like a really shitty mood and I want to get into a really depressed state and I want to just curl up into a ball and I want to watch a movie that makes me feel that way. And I chose Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler, which I think is just a a great story um, about a fictional uh, pro wrestler who is past his prime who is still trying to cling to his glory days because that's all he knows um this is such a great movie um actually i feel bad because the copy that i have actually belongs to frankie yes, <laughs> and i've had it i've had it since um it was that day that king finn came over for dinner but yes. i don't remember when that i don't remember when that was, that was i know me. alan was alive so alan um, was there it would be four years, like four and a half years ago. It was 2015, because uh, for sure, but I don't know what, what point 2015. I know it was um, in the because I had just okay. bought my new shelves, and I got them in the summer. <laughs> okay, then I, that's all I, I don't remember much else, honestly. <laughs> but um, yeah, I remember I borrowed this from you, and then like I actually never actually watched it. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of sat on my shelf. And so finally, when I decided like, oh, this is the movie I want to cover, I went ahead and grabbed it from my shelf. And I thought like, because y'all has still had the sticker on top of it. Yeah. From when, you know, when you buy it. And I was like, oh, wow, did they just never open it? And then upon closer inspection, when I went ahead and opened it, I saw that not only was it open, but fucking Angel's giant ass handprint is on the disc. Oh, my God. Good job, Angel. Um, <laughs> So I tried to clean it but it's pretty embedded in there um anyway it still works um so the wrestler of course is a film by darren aronofsky who uh i think most people associate with requiem for a dream yes and black swan and the fountain and a lot of other movies where like he really seems to hate his actors and torture them yes. <laughs> like that's requiem? fair to say Ooh. yes that's one of my favorite right? movies. I'm going to go ahead and say that. I freaking, like, that is the movie that made me love music for a movie. Like, the the script and everything is like, meh. Um, the music is what drives that movie for me. Uh, he's phenomenal. Good choice. Really? So you think the music is better than the story? Of Requiem? Yeah. Yeah, for me, like, if I just were to watch that movie with just the soundtrack, I would cry. I would have all the emotions. Like, just to see them acting it out, like, and not hear all the vocals. Like, yes, the vocals are important, but to me, the music of that movie is what made me fall in love with soundtrack. Interesting. And that that was my movie. Like, I watched that when I was in um, eighth grade. Eighth grade. Oh, wow. Did it freak you out? Um. No, it is dark. It made me realize how dark my taste is um, because it didn't freak me out. It made me super intrigued. And of course, like I wanted to research everything back then. Research wasn't as readily available as it is today. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, it just 
it completely opened my eyes to just how important music is for movies. Like if you watch that movie without the music, for me, it would be nothing. Like not as effective, you think? Mm-hmm. Not as effective at all. The music is haunting. And Darren is amazing at choosing music that matches the mood and the tone. And I just, I can't wait for you to cover your songs. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, actually. And so, so speaking of how he arranged the soundtrack, there's actually a quote on the sleeve of the DVD that says, from Darren, and it says, I love the music presented on the soundtrack. Put together, it helps to tell the story of the Ram. Each song was chosen to push the movie forward. And if you've seen the movie, or is like like I'm about to tell you, you really do get the sense that every song was picked perfectly and carefully and just like fittingly. You know, like every song sounds like it belongs in this movie. It sounds like it was written for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in, in one case, one of them was. So mm-hmm. I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but this is the story of The Wrestler. This premiered in multiple festivals during the fall and winter of 2008. Uh, it had a limited release in De- on December 17, 2008, and the USA release is marked on IMDb as January 30th, 2009. So I guess it depends on where you live that it came out. Uh, but it has a very small core cast. Uh, it, of course, stars Mickey Rourke as Randy the Ram Robinson. Woo-hoo! We have Marissa Tomei as Cassidy, whose real name is Pam, and we have Evan Rachel Wood, who plays Stephanie, Randy's daughter. Um, and so this is such a great movie. Um, I first saw this movie in college. I was in a film and literature class. Uh, it was with a guy named Professor James Wright, who I loved. I loved that class. Like, all we did was watch movies and read plays. And it was just, it was fun. Um, the, the lowest grade I ever got in that class was a 98. Of course. <laughs> so like, and one of my favorite assignments was um, we had to take um, a text that had turned into a movie and write an essay on the differences. And so I picked Psycho, of course. Of course you um, did. So, yeah, great, great class. And that's where I first saw this movie. And, of course, we had, like, we wrote essays about it. We had tests about it. Like, it was the first time I'd ever seen it. And at the time, I had kind of ta- I had kind of been away from wrestling. And so this kind of was, like, a reminder to everything. And then it was also just kind of, like, also exposure to some of the darker sides and some of the behind-the-scenes stuff of wrestling. Because, like, when I was a kid, I didn't really, like, read dirt sheets I didn't really read like the backstage wrestling gossip and like you said information wasn't readily available uh around the time that we were like in middle school because like the internet wasn't as big as it is now and so like like there weren't really inside like I wasn't savvy to the dirt sheets and like all the backstage stuff um and so so before social media outlets like wrestling and wrestling news wasn't nearly as accessible as it is now. And now fucking everybody has an Instagram and they're even like continuing their feuds through Instagram. Like that's like that's a thing now. You know what I mean? Um, and so now every wrestler has a Twitter and every wrestler has like a fucking social media profile and the drug and steroid use has diminished significantly. And the wrestlers are much more prone to sit backstage and, like, play video games instead of shoot up steroids, you know? Hey. <laughs> um, so, you know, one thing that, of course, everybody mentions is, like, wrestling being fake. Well, it doesn't pretend to be real. 
And one thing that when people try to like, no one's ever really like approached me and like talk shit about like, Oh, don't you know, it's fake. Like it's like, I'm a little old for that now, I think. But if, when, and if, and when someone ever does, I'm just like, yeah, but there are no stunt doubles in wrestling. No. Like literally everything people find entertaining, whether it be something like Walking Dead or like superhero movies or uh, Game of Thrones and shit like that. Like nobody's cutting and switching places with any of these professional wrestlers. They are doing everything live right in front of you. There are no stunt doubles in wrestling. So a fake is not the word. Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> of course my love for wrestling also comes out, um, <laughs> as I watch this movie. So, um, just throwing out that a lot of my sources were allmusic.com, Spotify, songfacts.com, and Wikipedia. Um, I limited the information I got off Wikipedia because some of these bands, uh, their pages needed like more citation or they needed like verification. And so Wikipedia wasn't as reliable for some of these bands and songs mm-hmm. um and so that's why i kind of started looking elsewhere uh but i did use wikipedia as well um so the movie starts off with my favorite kind of intro which is a montage and this is set to metal health bang your head by quiet riot So as the song's playing, we're getting this collage of photos and flyers and all kinds of like memorabilia and the opening credits start with a voice and they're describing a true American and the people's hero, Randy the Ram Robinson. And the whole sequence is accompanied by photos and magazine covers and headlines and promo posters from his prime years in wrestling. His best matches uh, appear to have taken place in the 80s. And he has headlined a lot of these shows. He's obviously a main eventer. We see he's had matches versus Black Hat versus Ambush. We hear the announcers commentating on his classic matches. You know, he wrestled the Funkmaster. And then we hear 18,500 fans at the arena. And he wrestled Corporal Punishment in 1987. He was in the match of the week in 1986. We see him with championships. We see that he's a decorated champion. And then we get to 1988, and he has a famous match against the Ayatollah. And one headline says that he has a great future after he picked up his 16th win, and he's declared Wrestler of the Year. Uh, He's part of the Mega Powers in 1989, and then the feud with the Ayatollah continues. And then they together sell out Madison Square Garden in New York. And toward the end of the opening montage, Randy wins the match. And then we hear the commentator say, April 6th, 1989, a match that will go down in pro wrestling history. Metal Health Bang Your Head is from the third studio album, Metal Health, by heavy metal band Quiet Riot. This was considered their breakthrough album. Now, um, so I wanted to give a bit of a background information as to like 
like how they got together and it turns out this is a long convoluted fucked up story oh really (laughs) this band is a mess like (laughs) I really wanted to summarize it in just a few sentences but when I got into the drama of it I was like I don't think I can narrow this down so stick with me (laughs) um so they originally formed in 1973 by Randy Rhodes and Kelly Garney uh, if Randy Rhodes sounds familiar, he was the guitarist for Ozzy Osbourne for a little bit. Now, they went by the name Mach 1, and then they went by Little Women, and then finally in 1975, they officially went by Quiet Riot. Um, I used to think that they chose their name because it's just a contra- like a contradiction, like plus it rhymes, and right. it's funny because riots aren't quiet. Um, but evidently, Rhodes heard a guy named Rick Parfit of a band called Status Quo uh, speaking in an interview, and he's British, and he used the phrase quite right. And so with his accent, it sounded like quite riot. Oh. So, yeah, isn't that funny? And so I had no idea that that was the origin. Um, and then the rest of the band was formed. So Drew Forsyth came on as drummer, and an L.A. photographer named Kevin Dubrow joined as lead singer. Rhodes did not like Kevin for the band, but he was included anyway. Kelly Garney, the bassist, grew to hate Kevin so much that one night he got drunk, robbed a bar, and shot a bullet through the ceiling before fighting with Randy and then told Randy that he was going to drive to the studio where Kevin was currently recording and murder him. Whoa. He was arrested on the way there and subsequently kicked out of the band. The first two albums by Quiet Riot were recorded in Japan and have never been released in the U.S. Garney plays on the album, but all promo photos show his replacement, Rudy Sarzo. Randy Rhodes left Quiet Riot when he auditioned for Ozzy and he was hired. Quiet Riot was pretty much disbanding when they realized Randy used early Quiet Riot riffs in the new material with Ozzy. The band said that many Quiet Riot songs ended up on Osborne's album, Suicide Solution. In 1982, Kevin Dubrow recruited Frankie Benali, Chuck Wright, and Carlos Cavazzo. Kevin asked Rhodes if he could revive the name of the band. He and Sarzo were cool with it, and the two-year hiatus was over. Later that year, Rhodes was killed in a plane crash while touring with Ozzy and Sarzo. Uh, Sarzo had followed him to Ozzy's band. And then Rudy Sarzo left Ozzy's band because he was unable to cope with the loss. And so the reformed lineup, now known as Quiet Riot, was recording the song Thunderbird as a tribute to Randy Rhodes, and they asked Rudy if he wanted to play on it. The session went so well, and they all got along, and so they ended up recording half of the album together. The bassist they had reformed with did not work out after all, and so Rudy rejoined Quiet Riot. There was some backlash about them using the name so soon after Randy's death, but Randy Rhodes' mother, Dolores, encouraged them to do it. That is a crazy... (laughs) Right? (laughs) I don't even have words. (laughs) So now, like, now do you know why I couldn't just summarize it? (laughs) Yes. I just, I didn't know where to start or stop. And I was like, all of this sounds really important. It is. It is. Like... (laughs) Yeah. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, Crazy. Yeah. So uh, this is a great opening sequence (laughs) by a (laughs) clusterfuck of a band. (laughs) Um, What's really cool about this sequence is um, 
the the photoshopped uh, photos of of Mickey Rourke as Randy the Ram are actually photos of Lex Luger from his NWA days. Um, and Lex Luger was pretty fucking built. Like he was considered like the Adonis of like wrestling. Like he was basically pretty, he looked like a Greek God. Um, so I'll post some photos just so you see what the, what the OG, bo- <laughs> who the, who the body belonged to. Um, but wrestling fans will know, of course, Lex Luger, uh, he had a stint in WWF for a little bit. Um, so that's, it's kind of cool to see those photos reused with, Randy's face on them. Um, so we meet Randy, and it's 20 years later. So this is 20 years after his iconic match with the Ayatollah. He's still wrestling, but on a much smaller scale. Um, when we first see him, he's sitting in an elementary school classroom, and he has just wrestled in a school gym for a cut of the money that was made at the gate, and it's not as much as he thought it would be. Uh, so he comes home to his trailer, and he's locked out because he's behind on rent, so he sleeps in his van. And then on weekdays, he works at a grocery store as, like, backstock. And so we kind of see what his life is like outside of wrestling. And then we see him go to a local banquet hall where he wrestles an XWX show against Johnny Rotten. Um, so it's, it's cool to see the wrestling show take place at a banquet hall because indie wrestling shows really do take place everywhere like schools outdoor like ecw started off in a bingo hall like if they can fit a wrestling ring there they will wrestle there i know Um, a quick plug for a bar that we've gone to a couple times misa wildcatter actually hosts some wrestling indie wrestling matches out there on their property so yeah that's exactly right um that's what makes indie wrestling shows so unique is that they can literally take place anywhere um, and so the promoter, uh, has all the wrestlers gathered together and he's announcing the matchups for the night. And then we see all of them with their opponents and they're talking about the match and they're planning their spots. And, um, I really love this scene cause I love the camaraderie that comes with wrestling. Um, it's fun to see them as real people, um, as friends discussing matches and they already know each other so well. Um, and Frankie, I know you'll understand this, but it makes me miss theater because oh God, you're in yeah. a group of people. Like You're in a group of people who get together to entertain an audience and the magic of a show can never be recreated. Yeah. Um, you know, like my philosophy teacher used to say, you can never recreate now. And that's okay. exactly what like Randy is learning throughout the whole movie is like Randy really tries to live in the past, but he can't recreate the past. He can't relive it. Um, but he tries really hard. So, um, and wrestling really is like theater, you know, it's partially why lately I've been enjoying like Raw and SmackDown have been taking place in an empty arena. And I actually like it because A, it reminds me of theater in the round and B, like, I think people are forgetting just how fucking annoying crowds can be. Um, so I, you know, so far I don't mind it at all that you're enjoying it because I know you were really upset um but I, I love that you bring up the theater in the realm too because that takes me back to like you know Greek and their acting days and that, that, thank god we had them acting to create all of our acting yes yes and and I love that you brought up like the Greek era because it's like I said before like Lex Luger looked like a Greek god wrestlers can be like considered the equivalent of Greek gods, like with the way that they are built, with the way that they talk. So it's, yeah, it's very, to me, it's very old school. Mm -hmm. I like it. Um, And as a theater fan, 
I am enjoying it. I think you, maybe you may not be a wrestling fan, um, but you as a theater fan, I think you would be intrigued by some of the stuff that they're doing now. Like they're really getting creative now that they don't have an audience. Like they're getting away with more. That's awesome. Like I'm not as big as you are and I do not watch religiously, but I've loved wrestling. Like growing up, I used to watch nothing but wrestling and was the biggest wrestling nerd up until like, high school and then I just switched over but I still watch wrestling because my kids like it so I thought like we tried to get Dagan into it a few years ago and he was like whatever he thinks it's more comical but now he'll watch it for like comedy relief like he likes to see people like get hurt okay <laughs> uh yeah I guess that's part of the fun too I think it's um, I like that too. Not for real hurt. No, 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 no. But I mean, wrestling, like, I mean, get hurt, like, in wrestling, you know, they they really are taking hits and stuff, but not for real hurt, like, not for real, you know, getting broken bones or whatever. Gotcha. Well, in that case, you should try to watch some of the stuff that they're doing now. For sure. Yeah, it sounds really intriguing. Yeah, like, it's like I said, like, I know people miss the crowds, but the crowds can fucking suck too. Like the crowds can be snarky. The crowds can be annoying. Like it's, it's nice to just have the wrestlers like do their thing and not have to wait on reactions and wait for people to shut up. And it's just, it's nice. I like it. I like the theater aspect. I like that. It reminds me of theater. Yeah. So we see like Randy's really well respected with the locker room and like him and Tommy Rotten have a match. And there is a part where like, Randy is hiding a razor blade in his tape and that's legit what wrestlers do like that's why Ric Flair wears tape on his fingers because like they always hide a razor blade there so that if and when they need to bleed in the match they're just going to cut themselves uh so there is a scene where Randy is having a match and uh he gets like thrown into a turnbuckle and he Mickey Rourke legit cut himself with that razor for that scene oh really yeah um so yeah it really was in his tape and he really did pull it out and just like slice his forehead open wow (laughs) it's pretty fucking hardcore but when you think about an actor like mickey rourke i guess that's not that big a deal right because he's like supposedly like a badass he is a badass yeah i've i've heard i've heard stories about he was like a bad boy back in the day so um anyway so after the match He's, like, getting, like, glued. Like, they're gluing the wound back together, I guess. And his promoter comes in, and he's like, hey, um, so we got that big show coming up with ROH for FanFest, and I was thinking about this. Uh, You and the Ayatollah. Two words. Rematch. (laughs) And Randy's like, I don't know. Bob seems pretty comfortable with that car dealership. And he's like, no. Bob's going to dust off the turban for this. And Randy's like, all right, let's do it. So 20 years later, they are going to have a rematch. Randy the Ram Robinson versus the Ayatollah. So um, so anyway, so he ends up going to the strip club where uh, he's, like, known. Like, they, he goes there all the time. And he visits Cassidy, who is also, like, who's, like, a stripper. And she is older. And the patrons of the club are not really interested in her, um, which I thought was kind of funny because, like, when I was Googling stuff on this movie and I was trying to see, like, some of the feedback that it had gotten, 
I found a, a Reddit thread where people were ta- like discussing The Wrestler and they were like, oh yeah, that movie is really good. But the one thing that is so comical is that Marissa Tomei would, would uh, struggle as a stripper. <laughs> oh, really? Because everyone thinks she's hot. So they're like, why wouldn't you want a lap dance from her or some shit like that? You know what I mean? So it was just funny. Like a bunch of people were saying it. They were like, hell yeah, she's hot in this movie. And they're like, yeah, she wouldn't have a problem making business in a strip club. I don't know what was wrong with that, with them or something like that. It was just funny to read. Um, she's amazing looking. She's like, she's basically naked throughout this whole, like I would say 80% of the her scenes. Yeah. Like. 80% of the time she's on screen, she's, like, naked. And, yeah, she looks good. I, I didn't even look up how old she was. She must be, like, something maybe early 40s. I don't know. But, um, yeah, she's she looks amazing. And apparently the first scene that she shot was the one where she gives him the lap dance. So, really? As a, I'm, I'm sure that was a really nice icebreaker. Of course. And so as he's, like, getting a lap dance from her, it's so funny because she's literally just, like, naked in his lap. And he's just talking about the match. He's talking about wrestling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, it was so great. There was, like, 20,000 people in the arena and millions more watching at home. And <laughs> it's just, it's great. It's such a wrestling geek thing to do. Um, and so then, um, so, like, the lap dance is over. She's just kind of sitting on him. And she notices that he's bleeding, like his cut like came open again. And she asks, does it hurt? And he says, well, it hurts when I breathe. But I mean, you know, you hear the roar of the crowd, you just motor through. And then she quotes the Bible as she's like stroking his hair. And she says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we were healed. And that's from Isaiah 53, 5 according to Google. Um, and it's, it's, it's such a beautiful quote, uh, I think. And it's, it's such a telling scripture and an oddly fair comparison to a wrestler um, because they really are damn near killing themselves out there for the sake of doing what they love and entertaining the fans. I'm, a, I'm of course, not trying to say that wrestlers are bigger than Jesus, but <laughs> it just also, it also reminds me of the current state of things. Like, I definitely don't want anyone to get sick or hurt but wrestling is there for us. Like they put their bodies and their health on the line all the time. So to them, this is no different. Like the show must go on even in tragedies. Agreed. So then um, it turns out like Randy is on a slew of enhancers. He buys like a thousand dollars worth of drugs from one of his peers. He buys Anadrol, EQ, Trent, Insulin, Sustanon, three amps in a box, DBOL, Quote, for your bitch tits, Amorex, or like something like that, Serostim. Uh, and then he injects himself, he works out, he gets his hair bleached at a salon, he goes to, you know, he goes to a tanning salon to lay in the bed, like, he does a lot to keep up his appearance. Um, and then he ends up having a hardcore match with CZW, and he gets fucked up. Like, this scene is really hard to watch. Um, <laughs> for me. Uh, I'm not a big fan of hardcore matches. I don't know how you felt about them, but I was not big on them. No, not at all. They're very hard for me to watch. Like you said, it's very gruesome. Um, And I mean, while we know that like wrestling is fake, I mean, they really are putting themselves out there. And even in movies, like I cringe at things like that. Like I don't want someone to be like that. And um, 
this is a hard scene for me to watch. In fact, sometimes I have to like kind of have it in the background and not really pay attention um, or else it, it really does like it hurts me to watch it. Yeah, it's it's rough. And what's um, what makes it even more real is that veteran wrestlers do sometimes like resort to this. Like sometimes when older wrestlers have passed their prime, but they still want to remain like, you know, kind of relevant or they they want to convince themselves that they can still go or like maybe they can still go like they'll push the limits. Like um, I, I I I love and respect him as a wrestler, but I feel like that's what that's what Mick Foley basically did when he joined TNA. Like mm-hmm. his career had a perfect like end in WWE, and uh, in, in my opinion, and then he ended up going to TNA. He ended up having like these hardcore matches with Ric Flair. They were both covered in blood, like. You know, I'm pretty sure the barbed wire made an appearance. Like, it was just, it was rough. And, like, it's one thing to watch Mick Foley doing shit like that in his 30s, but it's another to see him do it in his 50s. Um, And then, and wrestlers like Terry Funk, who has retired, like, fucking 20 times this year. Like, he's still going. Like, today someone made a joke about how his ashes are going to be in matches. Like, and I believe it. Like, these guys just... Like, they don't want to quit. They don't know when to quit. They're reluctant to quit. Like, it's hard. And um, and so I think that's why so many retired wrestlers, like, continue to wrestle or they create their own wrestling company or school. It's because they miss wrestling. Uh, you know, it, it becomes their lifestyle for so long. And then one day it's, like, over. And they don't really know, like, how to get back to real life. Uh, it was a lifestyle that they want to stay in. Um, so that's it's yeah this this whole hardcore scene and it goes back and forth between like you seeing him in the match and you seeing him get like stitched up because he's all fucked um and he's got staples in him and he's bleeding and it's just it's rough it's rough so then he vomits after the match he wakes up in the hospital and this is i think this is the first time we hear his real name because the doctor comes in and he's like mr robin ranzinski Mm mm-hmm and he looks at him and he's like, call me Randy. And already you can tell, like, yeah, this guy really suffers with identity because he'd rather be called by his wrestler name. Yeah. Uh, Life. Yeah. Like, he's, that's, he embodies Randy. He wants other people to know that. And so the doctor straight up tells him, like, you need to quit the steroids and you cannot wrestle anymore. <sighs> and so that's, that's like really devastating for him to hear. And so, he reaches out to Cassidy and um, he tells her like he had a heart attack and she's like, well, why don't you go see your daughter? And he's like, oh, she doesn't like me very much. And she's like, well, stuff like this brings people together. So you should call her. And so then he tries to go see her and she blows him off because she's just like, a, like, she's got abandonment issues and he wasn't a good father. And you can tell there's been like issues there. Um, they don't have a great past or a great relationship. Um, so then we see like Randy at a legend signing and this is, this is one of my favorite parts. Uh, but probably not for reasons that you would think like he goes to this legend signing and it's at a post office. And so like he downplays what happened and he, he's like, Oh yeah, I was in and out of the hospital in an hour. It's fine. And the promoter who's played by Judah Friedlander, Friedlander, 
he's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome, because I was about to cancel the Van Fan Fest. And he shows him the flyer, and it's official. Randy the Ram Robinson is scheduled to wrestle the Ayatollah. And so now he's just kind of like, oh, fuck. Like, I just had this heart attack. I can't wrestle. And now I'm being promoted, right? Yeah. So this is when he sits at the table. And it's a legend signing. So it's basically like a mini convention where a bunch of old school wrestlers are sitting at the tables. And people can kind of come and get autographs and pictures and merch. And so he's sitting at a table and he's selling shirts. And he's selling, like, VHSs, which is so (laughs) precious. It's adorable. (laughs) It's adorable. And he has like a Polaroid film camera for pictures. And then he just kind of looks around. And he sees like his peers and one of them is sleeping. And then there's a cane leaning on one of their tables. And then another one of them is in a wheelchair. And then the one next to him is peeing into a bag. And he's kind of realizing like the company he's in. And like he's wondering if he looks the same way. Um, and so part of the reason why I like this, this scene is because, like, I used to photograph wrestling conventions and autograph signings. I have never seen one look like this. <laughs> I've never been to one that was this sad. <laughs> but I know that some of them can be that way. It just depends on the promoter, the location, and the people that they're advertising. Like, who's going to be there? Um, but... We also see him greet some of the fellow legends at the signing. And so, you know, you can tell that they used to be friends and it's, you know, they're happy to see each other again. Because if you think about it, wrestlers go from being on the road together 300 days a week to never seeing each other at all, except for like special events and signings. Like I remember working Comic Palooza with Bobby the Brain Heenan and Roddy Piper and they started to wheel Bobby away. And then Roddy leaned over him and they talked for like five minutes very quietly. And then it wasn't until later that my coworker said, like, you know, for all they know, that's going to be the last time they ever see each other. And sure enough, two months later, Roddy Piper was dead. And it's like, it's shit like that. Like, that makes it kind of, like, uh, sad. That makes it kind of, um, oh, man, it's just... (sighs) Wrestling conventions, are (laughs) they're fun. Don't get me wrong. They're fun. Um, and it's it's great to see these guys reunite, even if only for so long. Because you just never know. You just never know. Um, and then another thing that I, like, another detail that I really like in this movie is how all the wrestlers are wearing fanny packs. And that's totally accurate because wrestlers were known and are still known to wear fanny packs. Um, and even back in the 80s, they would be filled with prescription drugs. Oh, like, wow. Oh, yeah. Like, they would just pop them like candy if they ever needed them. Like, they were just in their fanny pack all the time. Like, there's stories about it. So, it's kind of crazy. And so, during the convention, like, that's where Randy keeps his money, like, in a fanny pack. Um, So, then he visits Cassidy, and he tells her, like, oh, my my daughter, you know, she can't tell me to fuck off. Cassidy's like, well, why don't you buy her some clothes? Girls love clothes, which is not true, but fine, whatever. And so <laughs> she re- she recommends this, like, little vintage shop, and she gives him the address. And she, she agrees to, like, help him pick something out. So they're going to meet there. So they meet there, and he picks out, like, this tacky-looking green jacket <laughs> like yeah, for his daughter because it has an S on it. Yeah, it's not cute. And then after they're done shopping, he asks, Cassidy, who, by the way, today is going by Pam because she's not a stripper today, guys. 
um, he asks her if she'll have a beer with him. So next scene, they're at a bar and they're uh, talking about her kid and she's showing him pictures of her kid on her phone. And then Round and Round by Rat starts to play. So Randy gets excited to hear it. He's like, hell yeah. He starts dancing and he tries to get her to dance with him. And she's like, no, thanks. I've danced to this plenty. (laughs) And so he's like, okay, I'll dance for you. So he starts dancing for her and he slips between her knees. Oh, he's such a dork. (laughs) He's so cute in this scene. So he like, he gets between her knees and he gives her a lap dance. And then they start singing together and like they're singing the song and then Pam says, like, the 80s were the best shit ever, which I agree. I have to agree. And then Randy's like, hell yeah, man, Guns N' Roses fucking rules. And she's like, yeah, Motley Crue, Def Leppard. And then Randy's like, then that Cobain pussy had to come around and ruin it all. <laughs> and Pam's like, the 90s fucking suck. And he's like, yeah, the 90s fucking suck. And then he kisses her. And at first, it's like, weird and then she gives in and she kisses him back and then she stops herself and she like pulls out of it and she's like oh no contact with the customer sorry and she tries to leave but he's like wait you said one beer and she's like oh I did and she fucking chugs her beer and gets the fuck out of the bar (laughs) so she slipped up just a little So uh, this is one of the songs and bands that Wikipedia had some not-so-reliable sources on. Um, So if there's anyone out there who is a rat fan who wants to um, (laughs) help me me edit this little section, that would be great. Um, But um, Or if if you're a rat fan, you might want to go to Wikipedia and make some changes. That'd be cool, too. But from what I could gather uh, on Spotify, the band originally went by Mickey Rat. But when they recorded their independent EP in 1983, the success led them to signing with Atlantic Records. In 1984, they released their first full album under a major label called Out of the Cellar. Round and Round was the first single from this album, and it peaked at number 12. The lineup for Rat at the time consisted of Stephen Piercy on vocal, Warren DiMartini on lead and rhythm guitar, Robin Crosby on lead and rhythm guitar, Juan Crocier, I'm sorry if I said that wrong, on bass and backing vocal, and Bobby Blotzer on drums. Um, so that's all I could really find. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I didn't want to get wrong information, so I'd rather just get like what I knew was true. Yeah, um, but uh, this is such a cute scene. They're so cute together, um, and it's kind of like... Uh, I guess it would be kind of foreshadowing that like as they're singing the song, they just happen to stop singing on the part where it says, um, well, love will find a way, just give it time. And you can tell that they like each other, but she has her rules and, you know, he doesn't really know her that well. Like he just found out she had a kid, you know? Right. 
So he 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 feels like he knows her, but only so much, and she she knows that he doesn't know her very well at all. And it doesn't say how long he's been going to her strip club, but I mean, you can tell that he's been going for quite some time. Right, right, exactly. Like, they know him by name. Like, the bouncer knows him by name, the bartenders. But him and her meeting up to go to the store, this is the first time he's seen her outside because he even tells her, like, wow, you look clean. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> she's in clothes. Because <laughs> she's... Because she's in clothes. She's in like white, like she's wearing like a white hat. Like she's got like lighter colors on. Um, and he's like, wow, you look, you look good in the daylight. You look clean. And she's like, clean. <laughs> like it, he's like, oh, well, you look lovely. Like it's a compliment, but it's still, you know, so it's, it's, that's how, yes. So you can tell that he's been going for a while, but you can tell like he doesn't know all the sides of her. Right. Um, and to be fair, she doesn't know all the sides of him either. Um, so, and they're very similar in the sense that they both have these alter personalities and they both have their ways of entertaining a crowd and creating a fantasy. Um, and to both of them, age is kind of their nemesis because the older they get, the less appeal they have. So we get a little further into the movie. He ends up getting more hours at his job. So he starts working at the deli. Um, and... So there's a scene where on his first day, he walks from the back of the store, downstairs, through the backstop, and then we start hearing like the faint cheers of an imaginary crowd. And then he gets to the doorway and he pauses. And the cheers are louder and louder. And then he steps through the plastic curtain and then they stop. And this is his first day at the deli. Um, And he actually kind of starts to like it because he can be charismatic with the customers. And then the next day he he calls all his promoters and he tells them he's quitting, he's retiring, he can't do fan fest. He pulls out of all of his appearances. So he tries to make up with his daughter. He takes her to the boardwalk and he has this really emotional scene, which if you don't cry during this little monologue of Mickey Rourke's, I'm not so sure you're human. <laughs> not at all. I bawl during this scene. I do too. He just looks so sad. And considering it's coming from an actor like Mickey Rourke, who himself has kind of a tattered, you know, like tainted past would you mm-hmm. say yes because uh, he because he was a bad boy he was kind of a troublemaker he you know he gained a reputation that wasn't great um and so it's really really kind of perfect that he ended up playing randy and during the scene with his daughter he tells her that um she never did anything wrong and that he used to try to forget about her and that he used to pretend that she didn't exist he says but i can't you're my girl you're my little girl, and now I'm an old, broken-down piece of meat, and I'm alone, and I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. And it's, oh, man, it's it's rough. And she just cries silently, and they have this really sweet moment where they dance together, and they decide to have dinner on Saturday. Um, so things are looking up. Like Randy is starting to feel better. He followed doctor's orders. He quit wrestling. He's getting more hours at his job, which he's, you know, in some aspects is kind of liking. And now like his daughter is talking to him again and they're developing a relationship. So right now we're we're happy for Randy. Like things are going good. Right. But it's a Darren Aronofsky film. Wah <laughs> <laughs> wah. So, so. <laughs> So we go to the strip club. Yeah, so dangerous. 
And we see Cassidy. So she's back in Cassidy mode. And she's basically naked. And she's dancing on stage. And she's she's doing a really great little dance to this song. This is such a, like, rockin' but sensual song. Um, and she's, yeah, this is a really cool scene. It's, it's cool to see her have her moment. Like, throughout the whole movie, she's kind of just kind of appears naked if she does a lap dance. But this was, like, her moment to really show what she learned. Um, and yeah, man, she looks good. Uh, I'm not a lesbian, but swing. So <laughs> <laughs> then, um, she's so she's dancing. She's like on the, she's on all fours. And then she hears someone say, Hey, you. And she looks up and she walks over and it's Randy and he's smiling up at her and he's holding out an envelope for her. So really short scene, but I really love this song. So I went ahead and included it. Um, so this is a song, Dangerous, by Slaughter. The founding members of Slaughter consisted of Mark Slaughter and bassist Dana Strum. In 1988, they recruited members for a new band hoping to delve into the pop music genre. Uh, guitarist Tim Kelly was added to the group, as well as drummer Blas Elias. The band's first two albums were met with success, but the hair band hair metal genre was on its way out. And so they continued to make music well into the 90s, uh, but they never quite picked up the same traction that they had initially. Uh, and in February 1998, Tim Kelly unfortunately died in a car accident, and their album Eternal Live included what would become his final recordings. The band Slaughter are still active. However, their tour is postponed due to the coronavirus. Fuck Corona. Dude, man, don't even get me started. <laughs> it's not like I need uh, to say that, sorry. He gives her the card, and you can tell that he wants to pursue something with her, but she refuses. And she straight up says, like, I'm, you think I'm the stripper, but I'm not. I'm a mom. I have responsibilities. And you, I know you don't want that fucking baggage. He's like, well, what if I do? And she's like, you're a customer. You're a fucking customer. I don't go out with customers. And so then he's like, he gets the point. And so he's like, all right, fine. So then he like, he slaps some money down on the bar and he slides it over to her. And he's like, all right, here, I want to dance. And she's like, what's this? And he's like, come on, I want a goddamn dance, sweetheart. And then he starts getting aggressive. And he basically says like, come on, shake your ass, squeeze your titties together and pretend you like me. And then she just starts arguing with him. And that's when the bouncer comes in. He's like, Ram, come on, let's go. So he gets kicked out. And so he ends up going home, but then he's like, fuck this. And he ends up going to a wrestling show instead. And so they let him in because he's the Ram. And so he watches the show. And this is where our truth our truth has a cameo. Um, there's actually a lot of wrestler cameos in this movie. Um, I can't like I can't spot them all because some of them are just straight up background characters, but our truth has some lines in the film, which is really cool. Um, I kept re-watching to find Cesaro because I really want to see Cesaro in this film, but I don't know what scene he's in. So guys, if you know where Cesaro is, can someone send me a screenshot, please? <laughs> <laughs> or I'm sorry, at the time he went by Claudio Castellano or whatever the fuck. But anyway, Cesaro, please, thanks, guys. All right, so um, after the show, they go out to the bar, he meets some chick and they fuck and they do coke. And he wakes up in her weird-ass bedroom with a bunch of firemen all over the place. Like, there's firemen on her pillowcase. Yeah. It's weird. Anyway, so um, he ends up going home. He 
he sleeps for the entire day. And when he wakes up, he realizes he missed his dinner with his daughter. So he goes to her house to make up with her. And she says, like, I don't want to fucking see you or hear you ever again. I'm done. This is broken. Get out. And so now Randy is alone. He has no one to love, no one to love him. His daughter hates him again, and he can't wrestle. So finally, like, he's at work, and he's at the deli. And this, of all scenes, really, like, the hardcore match, I can watch bits and pieces, but the part where he slices his finger with the, with the meat cutter, I can't watch that scene. I have to skip it. I can't watch it. It's the worst scene for me. <laughs> It's the worst. It's I can't do it because it's. I had a friend when I worked at a sandwich shop. I had a friend who used to have to clean that every night, and she would cut herself on the nightly on it. It's mm-hmm. so easy to do, and it. Yeah, dude, and he does it on purpose. Like he just jams his finger in it, right? Yeah. Or I don't know. I haven't watched the scene. No, he does it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, and so he like goes crazy at work, and he starts slapping the blood all over his face, and he scares a lot of the customers, and he just fucking quits. He walks out of that store and he quits. And then he makes a phone call to the promoter. He's like, hey, man, I want to get back in on the match. Me and Bob, let's do it. And he's like, well, I don't have any money to pay you. And Randy's like, I don't give a fuck. I just want to wrestle. And so now he's getting ready for the match. He dyes his own hair with a Revlon pack in his bathroom and then he shaves his entire body and he gives himself a spray tan. So he's on, he's balling on a budget, but he's going to look good for this match. And then um, as he's uh, packing up his van, Pam shows up and she says like, Hey, I'm really sorry. I was a bitch the other day. You're not just another customer, but there's just a line that I don't cross. And he doesn't even, put up a fight, argument, nothing. He just says, yeah, I understand. And he just gets in his van. And she's like, wait, where are you going? And he's like, oh, I have a match. You should come out. And he gives her a flyer and he just takes off. And then the next scene, we see him driving out to Wilmington to visit a screen door factory. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's driving to Wilmington to go to FanFest for the match. So, Balls to the Wall is a song by German metal band Accept. This song was featured on the band's fifth album, also called Balls to the Wall. As far as what the song means, what do you think this song, have you heard this song? What do you think this means to you? Um, honestly, I don't even know. I thought it was about sex, but I guess I'm wrong. Right? Like, I thought it was like maybe someone's fucking up against a wall. Yeah. And they're just like you know, tapping. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. So I'm glad we were on the same page. Apparently we were both wrong. Um, But uh, what I found that the song was about, I thought was actually kind of appropriate uh, for what's happening these days, at least. Uh, Guitarist Wolf Hoffman said that the band has always taken interest in politics and human rights. And this song is about how the tortured will one day rise up and kick ass. (laughs) <laughs> Do you get that at all? 
Uh, I don't. I can't say I, I relate. I, I don't get that interpretation from this song. But it, I mean, hey, it's a power song. I feel like that was missed. I don't. I don't feel like that was properly executed. Yeah, it, it doesn't come across exactly. But then I guess you know it can be layered, right? <laughs> interpretation. Maybe up to inter- maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they wanted it to be ambiguous, but they knew what it was about. Right. Who knows. Um, but as far as um, as far as some of the accolades that this song has earned, it was voted number six on VH1's biggest songs about balls. <laughs> There's actually a list. Some of the others, I don't remember the list exactly, but some okay. of the other ones were Great Balls of Fire. Wait, can I guess? What? Can I guess is uh, is uh, ACDC number one? Oh, I don't know what was number one, but they were on the list. Oh crap! They were okay, on the list. Okay. Um, it was them and Jerry Lee Lewis and this one, of course, and then a few others. And I was just like, oh, of course, (laughs) like if it had balls in in the title, it was on the list. So of course that was pretty funny. Um, and then this song has been covered by Fozzie, which is Chris Jericho's band. Really? Yeah. That was really cool to find. Um, so that was actually featured on his on there, sorry, on Fozzie's 2002 album, Happenstance. Um, and actually, this was around the time, because at first, when Jericho first started his band, he tried to pretend he was two different people. Do you remember that? Hmm. <laughs> um, no. Oh, wait, yes, I do, yes, I do, yes, I do. Yeah, like, yes. he was, like, on wrestling, he was Chris Jericho, but in, in Fozzie, he was Moon Goose McQueen, and when people would ask him about each other, they would just be like, no, I don't see it. <laughs> but it was him. So it really threw off a bunch of people, especially, again, if you didn't have the internet, like you really didn't know that it was the same guy. Um, you really couldn't get a good look at uh, Moon Goose. But yes, so that was from his album. Uh, sorry, that was from the Fozzie album, Happenstance, which I'll post on the blog. And aside from that, Warrant has also covered this song at a live show. Yes. Mm-hmm. As well as Pussifer and Sinner. Oh my god, Pussifer covered this? Yeah, apparently. So I'm going to see if I can try to find that for the blog, too. How fun. For those of you who don't know, Pussifer is um, Tool's, um, I forget his name, Maynard's side band, side project. Yeah. One of the many. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Um, we're finally toward the end of the movie. We are at the ROH show, which if you're a wrestling fan, you know, Ring of Honor. Lots of, like, amazing wrestlers have come out of Ring of Honor. Some amazing wrestlers are still a part of Ring of Honor. Uh, Ring of Honor is probably one of the bigger indie promotions. Uh, Very well-known, very well-respected, and loved. Um, And so Randy shows up, and he meets up with Bob, and who is also known as the Ayatollah. And um, so he's like, oh, so do you want to go over the match? And Bob's like, okay, how about this? I'm the heel and you're the face. Done. (laughs) So basically, Randy's going to be the good guy, and the Ayatollah is the bad guy. And so we cut to the strip club, and Cassidy is in the middle of her act, and she's just kind of like dancing on the pole, and she doesn't have any lines here, but we see on her face that she doesn't really want to be there anymore. And so she up and decides she's going to go to Randy's match. So she leaves the stage, and she goes and she gets all her shit, and as she's leaving, one of her like coworkers is like, "Hey, you forgot your shoes." And there are actually traditions in wrestling, 
And one of them includes that when a wrestler is done, like when they want to just end their career, they leave their shoes in the, in the ring or they leave their boots behind. And so that's kind of symbolic of her finally just like quitting the stripper life and finally walking away from it. Like she's done and she doesn't want to do it anymore. And so she manages to make it to Wilmington in time because it's a movie. And so Randy's backstage and he's about to make his entrance. And she finally catches him. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing? And he's like, I'm doing my thing. I'm about to wrestle. She's like, yeah, but your heart. And he just kind of shakes his head and he says, the only place I get hurt is out there. The world don't give a shit about me. And she says, I'm here. I'm really here. What do you call that? And then in the background, we hear. Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. And then he kind of, he smiles at her and he says, do you hear them? This is where I belong. And he starts walking away. He starts walking toward the curtain and she calls out to him and she like tries to go after him, but he won't listen and he won't turn around. And she calls out to him one more time and then he bursts through the curtain and the crowd goes wild. So he makes his entrance down the ramp and we see an American flag drop down behind him. And so Pam makes her way around the wing. And so she like looks out into the curtain and she watches him make his entrance. And you can tell she's kind of disappointed that he's going to go through with it, but she's watching him anyway. And so he walks all the way around the ring and he's high-fiving people in the front row and everyone's cheering for him. And this is the biggest crowd that we've seen him in front of through the whole movie. Um, and so we see like he's got the recognition from the crowd and they love him and they're excited to see him. And everyone's just going crazy in the arena. And he high fives people and then he finally like gets all the way around the ring and he slides in. Um, and so he gets on the mic and he gives his heartfelt speech and he basically says, you know, I don't hear as good as I used to, and I forget stuff, and I ain't as pretty as I used to be, but God damn it, I'm still standing here, and I'm the Ram. They say he's washed up, he's finished, he's a loser, he's all through, but you know what? The only ones who are going to tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here. You are my family. And so the match starts, and Pam can't bring herself to watch it, so she leaves. And this is a very typical, like, foreign heel versus American face. Uh, it's a typical trope in wrestling. They've done it for years. Hulk Hogan, you know, the fucking un-Americans. And just it's just a constant thing. Um, at this point, though, if they did it today, I don't think it would work because America needs to get its ass kicked. But that's just my opinion. So... Um, the feud is really reminiscent of Hulk Hogan versus the Iron Sheik from the 80s. Um, so we see them go through the match. Um, the crowd is loving it. And Randy's kind of pushing his limits. And Bob tries to tell him, like, hey, let's take it home, which means, like, he wants to end the match. But Randy begins to feel the effects. And so he starts holding his chest. And he's got a buzzing in his ear. And he's winded. And Bob notices. And he tries to take control of the match which is like a perfect example of protecting your opponent because it's right. important to communicate and adjust. And if your partner's hurt, you, you need to adjust the match accordingly. 
Um, but Randy won't let him take control. Randy is still trying to push his limits. And so he looks out into the wing and Pam has left. And he realizes like he's alone and you see it on his face. And he climbs the rope. <laughs> and the crowd starts chanting for the Ram Jam, which is his signature move. And he gets up on the top rope. And he bends his elbows like a ram horn. And he kind of starts weeping. And he jumps from the top rope. And the movie ends. I'm crying. <laughs> it's a really sad scene and just movie. Um, so sweet. It's very emotional. It's very emotional. And it's very real and raw, and just like such a reflection on real life. You know, whether you're a wrestling fan or not, whether you know you understand wrestling or not, like this is really relatable to just anyone um, who has ever felt alone. Um, and you know, some endings are bleak like that. Some endings don't really have an ending. And that's just kind of how this movie goes out. And that's exactly what Randy does. So, ah, Sweet Child of Mine is a song by American rock band Guns N' Roses. This is featured on Appetite for Destruction, their debut album. The album was released on July 21st, 1987. And to this day, Sweet Child of Mine is the only number one U.S. single the band has had. The song originated with Slash, who was playing with some guitar exercises during a jam session, and then Izzy Stradlin, who was the rhythm guitarist for the band at the time, came up with the chords to accompany it, and then Duff McKagan, the bassist, started adding to it, and within an hour, it was a blueprint. Axl Rose was dating Aaron Everly, otherwise known as the daughter of Don Everly from the Everly Brothers. His relationship with her inspired the lyrics, and he also attributes Leonard Skinner as being inspiration because he wanted the song to have a heartfelt feeling. The where do we go now part, um, I've never liked that part of the song because it's very lazy songwriting. Basically, they didn't know what to add to it during that part, so they just said, where do we go, where do we go now, and just repeated it. <laughs> Um, I've never liked that part of the song. To me, it sounds like two different songs at that point, but whatever. The song has since been edited down for most radio stations, which Axl Rose has openly criticized. He said Slash's solo is his favorite part, and there's no reason it should ever be missing from the song. The music video for the song is basically a making of music video. We see crew and cameras and photographers as the band performs the song. And all the members' girlfriends at the time are featured in the video, as well as Stradlin's dog. Uh, as far as the song and its accomplishments, it was ranked number 37 on Guitar World's 100 Greatest Guitar Solos, number 3 on Blender's 500 Greatest Songs Since You Were Born, number 198 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time, number 7 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of the 80s, among others that I'm sure I didn't list. Um, Axl Rose actually allowed Darren Aronofsky to use this song free of charge uh, because it was such a modest budget to begin with. And Mickey Rourke actually used this song as an entrance theme when he was a boxer. Wow. I think that was in the 90s? Yeah, I forgot. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to see if I can maybe find some footage of that. He's a lightweight, um, right? Or featherweight? 
oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about. <laughs> I admittedly don't know anything about Mickey Rourke. This is the only movie I've ever seen of his. Really? Yeah, I don't know any. Like, I know about his like bad reputation, but it's only because of that's what everybody was talking about when this movie came out. Because this was like his redemption movie. Like, this was his Iron Man. Robert Downey Jr. type movie. I was going to say, did you see him in Iron Man? I did. Okay. But he didn't really talk much. Did he? he no, wasn't he like a Russian, Russian robot? Yeah, Russian accent. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, but I do know that, um, like, I can't remember where I read it, but someone was so impressed with him in this that they wanted him in Iron Man. Huh. So, so yeah. Because Iron Man came out, what, like a year or two later? Uh, yeah. That was the sequel, was or was that the third one? Uh, it was the second one. Second one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's been so long since I've seen them. I, I saw them in theaters, and that's the only time I've ever seen them. One of uh, my favorite <laughs> movies of his is on my list to cover soon. So, Ooh. Is it from the 80s? No. Really? Yeah. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, and as far as the lineup of uh, Guns N' Roses, at the time the song was recorded, it consisted of Axl Rose slash Duff McKagan, Stephen Adler, and Izzy Stradlin. Um, that does end the movie. Um, as soon as he jumps off the top rope, we fade to black. The sound cuts out. The ending credits roll, and we hear The Wrestler by Bruce Springsteen. And another honorable mention of mine is Animal Magnetism by Scorpions. Um, so that's my movie. Super sad. <laughs> um, but just just a great, beautiful movie. Um, you know, I would not be surprised if people mistook this as like a, a biopic or a true story because it really does feel real. Yeah. Uh, everything's down from like the handheld camera documentary type style filming like everything felt very real and personable like there was always something in this movie that you could relate to one way or another one character that you could relate to one way or another um, so I think everyone has something they, they could connect to with this film um, and it's just a great great story about some of the lesser known aspects of the wrestling world um, so just some uh, fun facts before I wrap up. I promise I'm almost done. Um, this movie was very well received. It has a 98% in critic reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It was made on a budget of $6 million, and it made over $26 million in the U.S. and more than $44 million worldwide. This was shot in 35 days in various neighborhoods in New Jersey. All the wrestling matches took place at real wrestling events with real live crowds. Wow. So yeah, cool. I thought that was really cool. Like, like, how lucky are those crowds to have been a part of fucking Darren Aronofsky film? So cool. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, so when Randy is first shown working at the deli counter, everything was improvised. There were actually real customers who approached the deli counter, and Darren Aronofsky would let the cameras continue to roll, and he told Mickey to go ahead and take their orders. <laughs> and then... Um, Every scene that you saw backstage with the wrestlers was also improvised. So none of that was scripted. Wow. Um, as a surprise to no one who is a wrestling fan, Hulk Hogan lied about being offered the role of Randy the Ram Robinson. Uh, he claims that he was offered the part, but he didn't think he was right for it. This never happened. Hulk Hogan is a piece of trash and he's a liar. Darren Aronofsky has said that Hogan was never, ever, 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 ever considered for this movie. 
and his only choice for that role was Mickey Rourke. Hulk Hogan's a piece of shit. Anyway, the studio wanted Nicolas Cage, which absolutely not. Oh, why? <laughs> could you picture Nicolas oh, Cage? I wish you could see my face right now. <laughs> I wish I could see your face too, just for the sake of I haven't seen it in a while. But yes. Ew. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, no, imagine the wig. Oh, God, no. Fucking uh, Conair looking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway. Even so, even though Darren wanted Mickey Rourke, Mickey Rourke did not immediately accept the role because he had a few issues with the way Randy was written. It was only after Darren Aronofsky allowed him to actually rewrite some of the dialogue that he ended up accepting the part. Really? Yeah, because apparently, like, in all the backstage, like, in all the documentary stuff that I saw in the making of this movie, like, they say it in such a way, but they basically, the subtext is, Mickey Rourke is difficult to work with. So it's really, it's kind of funny to listen to the way they word it, because that's basically what they're saying. And so they they kind of, there are parts where you know that they tiptoed around him because they really wanted him in this film. And so he got to rewrite basically his whole character. Interesting. I'm not going to lie. I cannot imagine this movie with anybody else except for him. Yeah. And this movie earned him an Oscar nom and a Golden Globe nomination. So, like... He needed this, I think. I don't think anyone else would have benefited as well, and nobody else would have played it as well. You know? I completely agree. Yeah. So, um, a couple of other things. The CZW scene takes place in the legendary ECW arena in Philadelphia. It was then known as the New Alhambra Arena. During the hardcore match, the glass pane was real glass, not sugar glass. It was connected to squibs and explosives, and it would be triggered. A stunt double plays Randy for the shot where he gets thrown into the glass. And in the special features, you see that the glass actually shatters before he hits it. But he's still got a few glass shards stuck in his back. Ooh. Yeah. So just a hazard to the job. Um, Slash from Guns N' Roses actually plays guitar on the score for this film. And Bruce, yeah, isn't that cool? And then uh, Bruce Springsteen actually wrote the song The Wrestler for free and allowed them to use it for free. He's actually a good friend of Mickey Rourke's. Mickey Rourke had sent him a copy of the script as well as a letter, and that inspired Bruce to write the song. Um, This movie was actually advertised and promoted with the help of WrestleMania 25. Uh, There was a a rivalry setup where Chris Jericho basically badmouthed a bunch of legendary wrestlers for tarnishing their legacies and embarrassing themselves uh, by trying to stay relevant. And he also criticized Mickey Rourke for his portrayal in this film. This resulted in a handicap match at WrestleMania with Jericho versus Ricky Steamboat, Roddy Piper, and Jimmy Snuka with Ric Flair in their corner. And after Jericho won, he assaulted Ric Flair and he goaded Mickey Rourke into the ring where Mickey Rourke knocked him out. Whoa. So that was pretty funny. Um, The ending is ambiguous, um, but I found out what really happened. Do you want to know? Yes, please share. (laughs) This is is my last bit of fun fact. So those who were a part of filming and in the crowd for that ending scene They saw the end of the match. The match ends with Randy pinning the Ayatollah for the 1-2-3. In his Reddit AMA session, 
Darren Aronofsky was asked if Randy the Ram Robinson died at the end of the film. And Darren Aronofsky said, of course. Just like that? He's dead. Uh, He didn't elaborate. He was just like, yeah, of course he's dead. There's your answer, (laughs) fishbulb. Yeah, yeah. So I I think... um, yeah, I, I thought that too. I figured that like he pinned him and then just didn't get up in, in my mind. Like he pinned him one, two, three. He ran out of breath. He closed his eyes and he died in the middle of the ring. That's how I pictured it. Yeah. But at least he won. <laughs> um, anyway, guys, that's my movie. I hope you're significantly depressed at this point. I am. <laughs> awesome. I've done my job. Anyway, this is an amazing soundtrack. Everything will be on the blog. I will add all the songs and my honorable mentions onto the playlist. And now it's Frankie's turn. Okay. All right. So I'm so worried that you haven't seen my movie. I honestly don't think I have. It doesn't, um, if it's not one of the ones I named, and even the ones I named I haven't seen. So I'm literally just pulling names like. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> um, so my movie is kind of a cult classic, um, but it is a dark, um, you know, black comedy. It's it's very funny, but it's very, like I said, very dark. And just how I was kind of feeling, like Misa said, like with all this corona and everything, I just haven't been in the best of moods. And so um, this movie is always one that I go to when I'm in kind of a eh mood. Um, and it is the 1999 American black comedy film, Jawbreaker, written and directed by Darren Stein. Oh, I've totally seen this movie. Okay, perfect. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Okay. Um, fucking, uh, yeah, my sister and I, I remember when back in the day, there used to be a Walmart on Beach Nut, and my sister and I would buy the $10 VHSs, mm-hmm. and Jawbreaker was one of them. She loves Jawbreaker. Um, and oh that soundtrack is banging as fuck so yeah let's talk about jawbreaker (laughs) go for those of you who don't know um jawbreaker stars um rose mcgowan rebecca gayhart julie bent and is the epitome of clicky teen high school film where one of their friends dies and they cover it up and it is filled with amazing one-liners a bomb ass soundtrack like Misa said and it is just awesome like it literally has everything that a teen movie should have plus death so for me that's a (laughs) win-win Darren has said that it was inspired by the film Heathers for those of you who haven't seen that another one of those cult classics that everyone should watch there have been similarities between Jawbreaker and another popular film Mean Girls so for those of you who haven't seen Jawbreaker but have seen Mean Girls definitely go back and watch Jawbreaker and you can see some of the similarities in the way it was filmed and even in some of the dialogue. So this film actually was released um, at the Sundance Films first back in 1998 and then it was officially released on February 1999. It is considered to be a critical and a financial failure which is why I call it a cult classic for those of you who don't know what that means. Um, you know our movie critics like 
Robert. Um, they don't really think much of it. It isn't highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes. It didn't do great in movie theaters. Um, but it is one of those movies that people like me and Mesa's sister love. <laughs> yeah. So it's just one of those films that um, I guess people don't realize how great it is until after the fact. Right? I agree. I think that this is one of those movies that, like, you needed time to appreciate. I I don't want to say – it's funny that I want to compare it to Rocky Horror because Rose McGowan has a similar line to Frankenfurter in this movie where she's like, I made you and I can break you. I love that you said that because that was one of my fun facts. (laughs) Hell yeah. Like – and so, uh, yeah, I remember bits. I remember a lot of this movie, and I love Judy Greer in this movie. She's yes. so adorable. She's so ad- Violet, my mm-hmm. Violet. Like, um, but yeah, like it's like you said. Like, um, I feel like this is kind of Rocky Horror esque, where like in the time that it was new, I don't think people could quite grasp it. Um, I think it took some time for people to really appreciate it and see it for what it was. Um, so I definitely, yeah, is this definitely a cult classic? Um, if you haven't seen it, you're missing out. (laughs) And I think it's kind of darker than what people think it is. So maybe that's why, like, maybe people thought it would be like, you know, one of those teen movies, kind of like She's All That or whatever with a really happy ending, but this is not one of those movies. So, I agree. Uh, and this <laughs> this movie came out around the time that teen movies were a thing and Absolutely. slasher movies were a thing. And this is kind of both. Exactly, which is why I love it. So like I said, Rose McGowan pay, um, plays Courtney Shane. Rebecca Gaycart plays Julie. Julie Benz plays Foxy. And um, our person who we don't really see, but Elizabeth Kerr is played by Charlotte Anaya. Um, and those four are like those perfect popular girls in high school the kind that everybody wants to be they're always dressed amazingly well um you know everyone knows them everyone wants to embody them and be them and we see kind of a montage of them walking down the hallway and we hear a voice talking about how they are perfect and they are known as the wholesome four and everyone just wants to be them and be their friends and have them come to their parties and do everything with them. And then we learned that Elizabeth is not quite like the other three. She really is liked by everybody. Like everybody loves her. She's sweet. She's not as bitchy as the others are. Um, And so we actually open up to her being assaulted and she's being like duct taped over her mouth and she's being carried out and we see her eyes like wide open and they stuff her into the back of a car and then we realize that the people who are doing this are actually her friends Courtney, Marcy, and Julie who we've seen in this montage and they're playing a prank on her for her birthday which they do annually and the girls are laughing and they're telling her they're gonna like talking to each other about how they're going to take her for breakfast and, you know, stuff her pretty face with pancakes and then, you know, go hang her by the um, flagpole. And so when they get to the place that they're going to go eat breakfast, they open the trunk and, of course, they're ready to take pictures on their Polaroid. And as they open the trunk, they realize she's dead. And they look at her throat and she has this huge ball in her throat. And Marcy and Julie are like, what is that? 
And Courtney says, oh, I thought it would be funny. I just didn't want her to scream. And Julie's like, you gagged her with a jawbreaker? And then the amazing song, Volcano Girls by Veruca Salt starts playing. My favorite part about this is as the song is playing, they're showing how the actual jawbreakers are made. And I just think that's, it's so funny. It's so, you know, it just creates such a juxtaposition between the movie, the darkness, and then the candy. It's sweet, you know, it's it's innocent. And we've just seen a girl die <laughs> by a jawbreaker shoved down her throat. So I just, I think it's hilarious. And, you know, maybe it's just my dark humor, but I, I love it. So Volcano Girls is a single by the American alt band Veruca Salt that was released in 1997 on their album, Eight Arms to Hold You. It was written by one of the main singers, Nina Gordon, who does sing lead vocals, and uh, Louise Post does the backup vocals. The song, um, like I said, plays at the, it plays in the entirety for the whole beginning of the song, and it was also featured on the Guitar Hero On Tour Decades video game. Uh, this music video is actually really cool because they shot with a live audience, um, which I thought was really fun because it had some similarities between what you said with the wrestling matches, how they had live people there as they're performing for all of these, you know, very ecstatic people. Um, and it shows them kind of singing and, you know, just having a great time. Um, and it's just, it's a really fun video. Um, this song, of course, because it is an alt song didn't chart super well but it actually was in the top 10 for the u.s billboard modern rock tracks and the mainstream rock tracks for 1997 which i thought was really cool because i didn't even realize that it charted that high um for those of you who don't know a lot about veruca salt they are an alt rock band that was formed in chicago back in 1992 by vocalist guitarist Nina Gordon and Louise Post. They eventually added Jim Shapiro and bassist Steve Lack. And of course, the name Veruca Salt comes from none other than Rolled Doll, which is the fictional character from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Which is funny because if you think about it, the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or I'm sorry, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, mm -hmm. their opening credits was the, the Chocolate Factory, like the making yeah. of the candy. Yes, exactly. I thought that was so funny. And I don't know if that was on purpose. I tried to find that out. Um, but I couldn't find any if that was just, you know, by coincidence or if that was purposefully done. But I love that you picked that up, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's immediately what because I don't remember the jawbreaker opening credits. But as you're describing them, I'm like, wow, that's kind of like perfect that Veruca Salt opens the film like that. So exactly. that's cool. That's exactly. Cool. Um, this is not one of their best-known songs. Their best-known song is actually from um, one of their other albums, and it's called Seether. Um, they've released a total of five studio albums, and my favorite thing about this band is that they do write and perform their own material, um, usually by Nina or Luis. And they don't really have like a specific way that they do their writing for songs. They just kind of like come to each other, and they're like, hey, I wrote this song, and then that's the person who sings it. Um, because both Nina and Luis do sing. 
Um, they did take a brief hiatus back in 2012, but then they reunited and they started performing with the original lineup and they are still going strong. So I thought that was really cool. That's awesome. Isn't that amazing? And one fun fact that I thought was amazing was Louise Post used to date da, 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 Dave Grohl from the I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> you wouldn't build something like that if it wasn't Foo Fighter related. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. Was that like in the 90s? It was. However, he cheated on her with Winona Ryder. Dave, for <laughs> shame. Although, I'm going to give know. you a minute. <laughs> can I, should I look up Louise and see if I can blame him? I'm kidding. Don't. I, I think she's okay. You you know what? Take a second. Look up Louise and Winona and you tell me. Louise, what's her last name? Louise Post. Post. From Baruch Assault, right? Yes. I do remember reading that he dated someone from Baruch Assault, but it was so long ago. Mm-hmm. Let me see her. It was. Uh, let's see. I mean, she's pretty hot. She's got like a Patty Jenkins thing going for her. Right? I think uh, oh, she's cute. Yeah, she's cute. I can, I mean, damn, babe. <laughs> I thought you were better than that. Okay. I can see why, though, because, I mean, Winona Ryder was a well-known Hollywood star. You know what Winona I mean? Winona was hot shit in the 90s. So, yeah, I don't think she was cute back then, but I think she um, was very well-known. I don't I don't think she was as – I don't see how she was that big a deal. I think she was a big deal because, like, her and Johnny were a thing. And that gave her some appeal, and uh-huh. she was she was kind of in everything in the early '90s, wasn't she? Yeah. Um, but I, as far as like, I didn't think she was the cutest. But then again, <laughs> I'm I'm not a guy, and I it was very early '90s, and I that wasn't something I was concerned with. <laughs> um, but yeah, like people talk about how she's aged well now. I don't see it. But hey, whatever. I'm not I trying to hate. She- I just. I definitely think she's prettier now. Um, but, you know, in spite of all of this happening, um, Post actually went on to keep Veruca Salt going because this is when the band kind of separated and she hired like a bunch of other musicians to come in until they all got back together in 2013. So nice. Yeah. I thought it was really cool. But I wanted to include that fun fact for you, Musa. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Dave. <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that. Shame. Yes. So after the girls are, you know, trying to figure out what the hell to do because they have a dead body in the back of their trunk because, you know, they try to play this harmless, cute prank on their dear friend for her birthday, Courtney, who's obviously the ringleader at this point, convinces them that they cannot say anything about Liz. They have to call in sick for her. They have to figure out what to do. All this time, Julie is like, no, we need to go to the police. We cannot do this. This is ridiculous. Um, And you can tell Foxy kind of follows Courtney, and she's just kind of like, okay, whatever you say, I'll do. So Courtney calls into the school, pretends to be Liz's mother, and says that she's sick with the flu to send one of her girlfriends home with her work. They get to school, and Courtney gives them all a pep talk, and she says, okay, 
reality check. Liz is in the trunk of this car and she is dead. That is a sad, fucked up thing that you are going to walk into that school and strut your shit down the hallway like everything is peachy fucking keen. And they get out and as soon as they walk down the hallway, they have this beautiful slow montage to you who performed by Imperial Teens. This is actually one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> this is one of the most amazing teen movie montages ever. You see these three gorgeous girls and their beautiful, bright colored clothing, even though we're in the darkest comedy. And they are walking slowly and cutely down the hallway. And you can tell that they are teen royalty. This is one of the parts that is repeated in Mean Girls, by the way. Um, this song was hard to find information on, so please forgive me. I tried song facts. Of course, I looked in IMDb, Spotify, Amazon, lots of different places. But this is one of those songs that I just could not find a lot of information about. So if any of you know about Imperial Teen and Yoohoo, please let me know. Um, Part of the reason is Imperial Teen is kind of an indie pop group that is made up of lots of other people from different groups. Um, Rhody Bottom from Faith No More, um, who's on guitar and vocals. Will Schwartz from Hey Willpower, who's on guitar and vocals. Lynn Truell, who's from a couple different bands, um, Sister Double Happiness, The Dicks, and The Rex, plays drums and backing vocals. And then you have Joan Stebbins from The Rex playing bass. And they all kind of join together to create this awesome group that just really does some weird stuff. And I love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they've had a couple different albums. Um, and they actually were reviewed as being like one of the most amazing or the top 50 queer alt rockers of all time. And they talk about specifically how their songs are really, really phenomenal, especially the ones about homosexuality, Kurt Cobain, and Complete Nonsense, which is Imperial Teen. And for those of you who, like me, didn't really know what the lyrics said, the lyrics are bizarre. Um, I mean, when I looked it up, I was like, oh my God, it actually says that? It's it's really crazy. It starts with, you know, the very simple, like, ah, you who, and then it says something um, like, smells like nothing, back to beatnik. I want to partner a big shot rock star. <laughs> it talks about a shotgun wedding, and it talks about the Kama Sutra. Nice. I mean, it, it's utter nonsense. It really is utter nonsense, but it works. <laughs> Yeah, this is a great montage. I love how it's all like slow motion exactly. and like the high school is just kind of going on around them and they're just like fucking fabulous. Yes, and they also parody it in uh, not another teen movie. Oh my God, why are you reading my mind today? Yes, I was just about to say that. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Oh my God, I love it. Um, 
that's exactly like this it's just it's a phenomenal song in this movie um again this is off their second album um called what is not to love um it is one of their only five albums and this was released in september 15th 1998 um i really couldn't find a lot about this song like what was the inspiration i was trying to find a lot about that but really most of the things that i could find where the inspiration was just kind of nonsense and drugs so what makes a better song what makes a better song i dare you to tell me and i couldn't find out why the song was chosen specifically um because i looked into that too there's just not a lot of information berenstein hasn't really released that but i do know that he did handpick each of the songs that was chosen so I guess he's an alt indie band person. So in the song, let's play again. And I'll get back to that, why, why it plays for a second time. Um, so we move on. They walk into school. They own their shit. You know, they, ha- they go through their regular day like anything. Um, and then the girls are supposed to take something to Elizabeth, her, their principal. Um, they end up being late, and so the principal sends one of the kind of reliable nerds, whose name is Fern Mayo. While Fern Mayo is walking, the three girls are trying to figure out how to set up Elizabeth so it looks like she died at home, and Courtney concocts this whole, you know, she was raped. It's the portrait of everyone's, you know, worst nightmare come true, the pure teen you know, defiled and has this whole other side to her. And so they literally are tearing her underwear, setting her up on bed, on the bed to look like her legs are spread. And Courtney's like talking about all this nonsense. And all the time, Julie's just kind of sitting there like, I don't want anything to do with this. This is ridiculous. But she isn't stopping them from doing what they're doing. So as they're sitting there, Fern goes up to the door and she is rehearsing what she's going to say to Elizabeth. It's quite obvious that Fern looks up to Elizabeth, wants to be her, whatever. And she hears someone scream from inside the house. So she walks in and she overhears the other three girls talking about what they're doing. And Courtney starts talking to her about, what did you hear? Tell me. And then Fern looks over to the bed and sees Elizabeth's dead body on the bed. She runs. The three girls chase her. They catch her. And this is when Courtney concocts this amazingly beautiful idea that now that Elizabeth is dead, they need a new person and they're foursome. And who better than Fern? So Fern gets this wonderful makeover where she becomes a whole new person, which, you know, in high school, that's a big deal to be one of the popular girls, to be, you know, noticed and not ignored, not one of the just nerdy girls who falls into the background or whatever. So Fern takes it and this song plays again as Fern is now a part of the group with this new blonde, cute haircut new clothing and she's walking into the school noticeably without Julie. So now the threesome um does is made up of Fern, Courtney, and Foxy. The movie goes along with Courtney telling Fern, whose name now becomes Violet 
my Violet. Of course, this is Violet's first time being popular. And I like to relate this to kind of like the the nouveau reach, you know, the saying like when people first become rich, they don't know how to handle their money type thing. Um, same thing for popularity. When she first came into popularity, she didn't know how to handle that. And it went straight to her head. Um, and Courtney is kind of trying to like figure out how to handle her. And meanwhile, Elizabeth's parents, who I guess were on vacation, come home, find her dead body, call the cops, of course. And so now there's this police investigation going on. Um, so the investigator starts coming to the school and she individually interviews the girls. And of course, Courtney is calm as can ever be because she is like Satan in heels. Fox is kind of, you know, like ditzy and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And of course the other girls are just kind of going along with it until we eventually see that Courtney has decided how to make this whole thing go away. And she really is going to figure out a way to set it up as a rape. So she goes into this sleazy bar and at first we don't see who it is we just see her kind of walking and we see the backside of her and she walks into this bar and all these guys are immediately like turning to this person and then we see this sleazy guy with this porn stash played by no other than Marilyn Manson mm-hmm. And he starts walking behind the girl, and we realize that it's Courtney. Um, and they go to Elizabeth's room, and we see them have sex over her dead body. All of this is happening to this beautiful montage, uh, a song by the Scorpions, which was one of your honorable mentions. <gasps> I thought was funny. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> we always have at least one thing in common. Of course, of course. <laughs> you know, six degrees of separation. Um, The song Rocky Like a Hurricane starts playing. So Rocky Like a Hurricane is a song by the German rock band, The Scorpions. This is considered their signature song. Um, the song was released as their lead single from their ninth studio album, Love at First Sting, back in 1984. Um, it was written by members of the band and then arranged by their producer, Dieter Dirks. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm sorry if I'm not. The lyrics, Rocky Like a Hurricane, are also a reference to the album. Um, this song is considered one of the greatest rock songs of all of all of course it's on the top 500 songs and it's also on the billboard hot 100 at number 25 um which does contribute to their kind of album success and mtv actually put their video in heavy rotation back when they used to play music videos not anymore oh those were the days (laughs) of course of course The song has actually been used a lot in media, including the new Trolls movie, The Good Guys, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, The Simpsons, The Big Bang Theory, um, in several movies like Jawbreaker, Knocked Up, Little Nicky, The Cleveland Show, 
Um, and it's also been used for promos such as Blades of Glory, The Iron Giant, Monsters vs. Aliens. Um, this movie, this song is used a lot for um, any kind of like film, television, video games. It's also used in sports and it's become the unofficial anthem for quite the numerous amount of teams, including the Tulsa Golden Hurricanes, Miami Hurricanes, the Carolina Hurricanes, you know, just anybody with hurricane in their name, really. Because it's such a hype song that, of, of course, course, like, if your team name is score is, is fucking Hurricanes, then yeah, you, you want your own thing. I mean, it's like a mandatory thing. Exactly. <laughs> um, it was part of the um, the Mets, um, one of the uh, Nick Evans of the New York Mets, he uses as his at-bat music, as well as someone from the Chicago Blackhawks, which is a hockey team, um, used it for when he hit a goal. So, I mean, it's, it's very well known. It really is one of their top, top songs. I mean, if you don't know any other songs by the Scorpions, you know Rocky Like a Hurricane, right? Definitely. And considering like, like all the, all the different um, places that you just said, like it has played, like it's played in multiple sports games, which means it's been heard by millions of people who were either at games or watched at home. Like it's, I feel like it's very closely associated with sports. Like that's where I've heard it a lot, of course, Right, um, like, like commercials and stuff. Yeah. So like little fun, I guess, fact about my life when I played softball when I was younger my dad specifically wanted to name my team the Hurricanes after the song that is so cute (laughs) I love that (laughs) I was like so I love that that's awesome fun fact so um the band does consist of Klaus Main Matthias which is like Matthew here Um, Rudolf Schneeker, Francis, you know, all those names that I can't pronounce, Francis Gilchalk and Herman. Um, The band was started um, back in 1965, which I didn't realize that they got together back then. Like, I didn't realize that they were, you know, jamming for so long Um, since 1965. That's crazy to me. Um, so Rudolph is actually the person who started the band and then he kind of gathered the others. The lineup was kind of solidified between 1978-ish. Um, and then they played most of their music and did most of their albums until like 1992. They are still touring to this day. Like they have never taken any kind of hiatus or break or anything, which I thought was awesome. Like just, you know, Badass, badass. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, They, like I said, are still playing. They've had numerous amount of albums. Um, They have created music for political times as well, for like when the Berlin Wall fell. Um, Their song, um, Wind of Change, is what was specifically written for this event, and it is considered one of the best-selling singles in the world with over 14 million records sold. Um, They are one of the um, most known bands out of German, kind of like the German, um, I don't know how I would say that, like the most amazing German band, the most notable. 
like uh oh my gosh i feel like it's on the tip of my tongue um right, like words help me out here like kind of like um like they're they're germany's most well-known like hometown pride band kind of yeah okay there you go there you go yeah perfectly said perfectly said there we go um in total they've sold over I'm sorry, let me re-say that. In total, they have sold over 110 million records. They've released 18 studio albums, 27 compilation albums, and over 74 singles. Six of their singles have reached number one in different countries. Um, Their albums, singles, compilations, and videos have ranged in gold, platinum, and multi-platinum over 200 times in different countries. So, I mean, they are like a true rock band. Um, Rolling Stone has described them as the heroes of heavy metal. MTV has called them the ambassadors of rock. They have influenced several of the bands that we are so, you know, just kind of those household names of heavy rock like Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Metallica, Megadeth, Skid Row, uh, Cinderella, Halloween, all of those bands typically say that the Scorpions are one of their influential bands, you know, for what made them want to do music, which I thought was really cool. That is really cool. Yeah. The Scorpions were ranked 46 on VH1's Greatest Artists of Hard Rock. And like I said, Rocky Like a Hurricane is just one of those songs that everyone loves. And it was ranked number 18 on VH1's list of 100 greatest hard rock songs. So they do have a couple ballads, though, because you know how in the 80s we like to have our rock bands do ballads. That's right. They had to keep it up. They had to balance it out. (laughs) They did. It's all about balance. Um, Their ballads, Still Loving You was very well received and it ranked actually the 22nd place among the greatest ballads ever written, which I thought was really funny. It's just that awesome, you know, mix. <laughs> they do have a star on the Hollywood rock wall and they have a permanent exhibit in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, um, and they are one of the very few bands that can say that they have been together and are still rocking for more than 50 years consistently god that is fucking cool that is so fucking cool like Isn't that amazing? kudos to them for just keeping it alive and the longevity like that's serious dedication that's probably more than half their lifetime at this point isn't that crazy i love it it's amazing and this whole song matches what's going on in this scene though i just want to take it back to the movie because you know as they're talking about like what Um, when they were talking to Rudolph, the guitarist, about like, what was your inspiration or what made y'all write the song? The song is literally what he calls the perfect rock anthem, because it talks about nothing but attitude and sexuality, which is exactly what is going on in this movie. When you see Courtney, and you don't even see her face, you just see the reaction from the men walk into the bar. And it's literally like, you know, the cartoon where the wolf is looking at the girl and like his mouth and his whole jaw drops and his tongue rolls out Mm -hmm. that's how all of these men are Mm -hmm. like she just walks with this badass aura and all of the men are all eyes on her and when she gets to the nameless character that's played by Marilyn Manson he like licks his lips and strokes his weird porn stash and it's just it perfectly 
perfectly match with what's going on. One fun fact that I did want to include about the song is this song was included in the 1985 um, PMRC group, which was those four wives of the political men who created the Washington Wives to have record labels label whether songs were sexually explicit or not because of the lyrics in the song. Oh, I do remember that was a thing. Yeah, they, they wanted uh, album covers to have like the explicit content warning on it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's where it started. started yes. So... After, you know, Courtney has, you know, kind of sealed the deal, she does go and tell the um, police investigator, you know, I don't want to rat out Elizabeth. I know she wasn't very open about this, but she um, was very into sex with, you know, random dirty men. And that's how this whole kind of thing played out. Um, and during this, Julie kind of called her on her lie and tries to correct the situation and Courtney maintains her cool and it was like, no bitch, you're not doing anything with this. Like, I got it. I, you know, I'm taking care of this. Meanwhile, Violet has run amok. She thinks she's hot shit. She's over here, you know, not playing by the rules, pulling up in her badass, you know, Mustang, old Mustang, beautiful red Mustang, where she sits on the top and like plays this loud music. And Courtney and Marcy are just about done with her. So they show her that she is nobody but what Courtney has made her to be. And they expose who she really is. So Violet teams up with Julie and Julie's new kind of love interest to take down Courtney and Marcy. And of course, because this is a teen movie, all of this happens at the prom. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. What have we learned, guys? <laughs> Shit goes down at the prom. <laughs> and of course, who else is playing at the prom but the Donnas? Oh, fuck yeah. And they are playing Rock and Roll Machine. is that they're playing the song live and it's just amazing and you see the excitement from everyone as they're getting out of their limos and their cars and everyone's coming up to the prom and of course it's you know a teen movie prom so it's in the cafeteria of their school or the gymnasium of their school one of the two um and it's just it's the perfect teen movie of course what teen movie doesn't have the prom in it um, and the fact that they have a live band is really cool, too, because, you know, it was either between prom or they have a DJ played by Usher. And I guess Usher was busy. Just yeah, I think I think this I think the film ended up just the way it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> so the Donna's is um, an American rock band that was formed in Palo Alto, California, back in 1993. They have disbanded officially back in 2012. However, they have said that they're on hiatus. It is made up of Brett Anderson, who's on lead vocals, Allison Robertson, guitar, Maya Ford, bass guitar, and Amy Cesar. I know none of them have the real name Donna's. I am so upset. 
I did not expect that. That's that's the swerve. I was so sure that they were all Donna's. I'm sad. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys didn't realize that, I'm so sorry for breaking that to you. I know. I know. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, what is my life? I know, really. So basically, they just kind of chose their last name initial and decided to be Donna A, Donna R, Donna F, and Donna C. Sorry to break that news to you guys. Um, they did draw inspiration from the Ramones, the Runaways, of course, ACDC, um, the Bachman Turner Overdrive Band, and Kiss. Um, Rolling Stone has kind of coined them as the most notable American alt rock band, which I thought was really cool. Um, NTV has stated the band has a good old fashioned kind of like a rock and roll sound with a cult following and kind of like punk look. Um, and they didn't really officially debut um, to MTV or VH1 or anything like that until 1997 when they achieved a major label. Um, so which really, I guess, makes sense. You know, people who follow them back in 1993 would be from their kind of like guitar, I'm sorry, their um, garage sound. Yeah, like when they were like indie scene band, like local kind of rising up. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I didn't realize, like, this makes me feel so old. They were all born in 1979. Oh, wow, they're my sister's age. <laughs> yeah, like, growing up, I thought they were like, oh, they're just a little bit older than me. No, no, they're they're quite a bit older than me. <laughs> wow, yeah, because I remember when, when me and you and Martha were in middle school, Martha listened yeah. to them. Yes. And they looked like teenagers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Lies. Wow. That's crazy. Whenever I think of this band, I think of Martha because she was always like listening to them. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Martha. Woo! <laughs> oh, my God. We need fajitas, Martha. Um, I just remember like, I can't, I think it was actually, do you remember April Lozano? Of course. Okay. She's the one who introduced me to the Donnas. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. Yeah, and that was, of course, in middle school. But I mean, yeah, so about the same time that Martha was listening to them, so. Aw, oh, good times. <laughs> I know, I know, God. Take Simpler times. Off, right? So, um, of course, this song, there's not a whole lot of information. And again, the um, in the movie, and if you look up the soundtrack, it's called the Rock and Roll Machine, but the real name of it is the American Teenage Rock and Roll Machine. It is the first song off of their second studio album, um, and it was released back in 1998, and um, it sold like 32,000 records, and that's about all the information I could find about it. <laughs> So around the time that I met you and you were listening to them, that would have been like their fourth album. Yes. I didn't even realize that they weren't new. That's yeah. crazy. Now, yeah, now I get what you mean when you say you feel old. <laughs> like, yeah, I knew nothing about them apparently before this. Right. Like, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. That's really cool. Uh, I know. I, I, and I love that they're in this movie. Like it just makes me happy because it takes me back to, like you said, our teen, our middle school years. So the song does play. Um, they are the prom band. And while they're playing, we see, of course, Courtney and her beautiful dress. We see Marcy and they're, of course, loving all of this um, teen popularity from everyone who's swooning over their dresses and everything. 
Um, we see Julie has shown up with Violet, aka Fern, and we see um, the boy who Julie is talking to kind of messing around with the sound because miraculously, um, do you remember those cards that where you can press them and record a message into them? Yeah, like the greeting cards with the vocal message. Exactly. Somehow it has miraculously happened that Julie perfectly managed to record Courtney saying, I did it. I killed the teen dream. Deal with it. And so her little boy toy is trying to figure out how to get that sound to go over the whole um, audience. During this time, the principal comes up, announces prom king and queen, which is Courtney and her boyfriend, Dane, who is, you know, this adorable football player. They go up and as Courtney is starting to talk, of course, Julie's boy toy has managed to get the audio to come up and play. So now everyone is looking at her and hears the audio of her saying, I did it. I killed the teen queen. Deal with it. Everyone knows who the teen queen is. It is none other than Elizabeth. So now they realize that everything has been a lie. And instantly, the teen mob pounces. Just kidding. They just throw corsages at her. They call her bitch. They say, fuck you. They curse her out. And, you know, of course, Courtney tries to play cool because that's who she is. But then she realizes she is not going to get anywhere with this. So she tries to leave the the building and everyone just starts attacking her um all the while this beautiful song by bing crosby is playing young at heart fairy tales can come true it can happen to you if you're young at heart young at heart was actually recorded originally by frank sinatra which I thought was cool because I didn't realize that back in 1953. And it was written by Johnny Richards and Carolyn Lee. Um, Frank Sinatra did, of course, bring the song to popularity. And it was millions of, you know, albums selling in 1953. And it did spill over into 1954. It reached number two on the Billboard charts back in that year. Um, and several people have gone on to cover it, but none as popular as the Bing Cosby rendition, which did reach number one. And he did record it almost immediately in 1954, which I thought was interesting. So, and it is based off of the movie Young at Heart as well. The song has also been used in several other soundtracks and films, such as The Front, Sweet Dreams, City Slickers, It Could Happen to You, Space Cowboys, and it was used in the 2016 Summer Olympics featurette for Gatorade, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> that is cool. I also didn't realize that it was originally Frank Sinatra. Yeah, me neither. Um, and like I said, it's been covered by a lot of people, and I'll um, kind of go over just a list of some of the popular popular people who've covered it. Um, and it was also covered, one of the most notable was by Dick Van Dyke back in 2016 at the age of 90. He recorded it with his wife on a HBO special called If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast, which kind of starred some other um, 
people who acted back in the early 50s and 60s, um, including Mel Brooks, Norman Lear, Stan Lee, my love, Betty White, and lots of other people who were older um, than 90. And it was recorded on the same microphone that Frank Sinatra used when he first recorded it. That's cool. I know. I thought that was really awesome. Um, And fun fact, The Cure incorporated verses from Young at Heart into Why Can't I Be You? Which, of course, I love to hear. So I was like, oh, I have to include that. Um, So like I said, the version that's played in this movie, though, is the one that is sung by Bing Crosby. And for those of you who don't know who Bing Crosby is, he um, he does performed by the name Bing Crosby, but his real name is Harry Lillis Bing Crosby Jr. And he is one of the most notable American singer, comedian, and actors. He is considered the first multimedia star um, since Crosby was considered a leader in record sales, radio ratings, and in the motion pictures. He was not only in film, but he was also included in sports. as far as golfing and baseball, and he also dabbled in the horse races. Um, He was very good friends with Frank Sinatra, um, so I don't know if he kind of had to pay royalties to him for having to cover the song, as well as Dean Martin and some other popular people um, back in the 40s and the 50s. Um, Crosby is, there's kind of some, I guess, how do I word this? There's kind of some different views on how Bing was outside of acting. Um, one of his sons has gone to say that he was an alcoholic and that he was abusive and things like that. And then some of his other kids have said that's a lie and they didn't see that side. So there is kind of you know, after death, because he did die back in um, 1977. So it's been quite some time that he can't really defend himself. There is some differences in opinion about who he really was as a person. Um, And it has created some controversy in some of the um, sporting scholarships that they have in his name and things like that, um, as well as different um, awards that they have in his name. So, and I mean, of course, when you look at him, he just looks like a, you know, a skinny white guy. I guess that's one of those um, situations where I guess you have to kind of separate the person from their art. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to do that. Um, Yeah, I agree. Like, I... Like, I feel like you might be on the same page as me, but when I, when I find out that like a musician that I like is actually like a shitty person, it really turns me off, like from them as a whole, like it's harder for me to enjoy their art Oh, totally. Um, or, or in, in recent cases, like the whole me too movement and, and the way your perspective has changed on certain actors and, you know, can you really watch American beauty the same way ever again? You know what I mean? Here I am thinking of Kevin Spacey as soon as you said that. Yeah, so it's and he's he's probably one of the more controversial ones. Um, yeah, that, and I that love was him. Revealed. You, he's a great actor. He's chilling. Um, it breaks my heart. Breaks yeah. my heart. Yeah. Yes, completely yeah. agree. 
And then, but then again, you have to think like, I guess I, and I'm not trying to advocate for them being assholes, but like, it's like you said, like he was in the same company as Frank Sinatra and like the, the, the Rat Pack basically. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Back then they kind of were assholes. Like they were kind of known to be assholes and like, now we can talk shit about it, but at the time people just kind of accepted it because they were charming and they were famous and like who was really going to talk back to Frank Sinatra, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so I'm not justifying that like, yeah, he probably was an asshole, but it was okay. But I'm saying like times were different. Like it's kind of like when you think of how like Steven Tyler had like an underage wife and like, you know, some of those rock stars had to adopt their wives because they were underage. Like the time was different. Um, musicians yeah. and people who were famous in general, they got away with some shady shit just because the time was different. Um, so it's easy now to be like, yeah, he was an asshole. Yeah, he he was this or that. But like, I guess that's because now like things like that are highlighted a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't know much about Bing Crosby. I wouldn't be surprised if he was an asshole because I know Frank Sinatra was kind of a dick. <laughs> um, but, I mean, uh, you can't deny that voice. It, he had a great voice. Oh, God, yeah. Talented as fuck. And if we can separate that person, we realize, you know, just how well-renowned he was for everything he did. He's one of the very few people... Um, to have three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in the categories of motion picture, radio, and audio recording. Um, He has received several Grammy Global Achievement Awards, um, and he was one of the influential people behind the recording industry, which is just, it's amazing. Like, without some of his ideas, we wouldn't be where we are in broadcasting and things like that. And some of just, you know, more of the career um, heights and impressive things that he's had. He's had over 396 singles that have charted, including 25 number one hits. Um, He's had charting singles every year between the years of 1931 and 1954, including several notable Christmas songs that continue to be played to this day. He's had 24 separate popular singles back in 1939 alone. So in that single year, he had 24 number ones. That's basically one every two weeks. <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, who else has done that, guys? Dude, it's, you know what? Bing Crosby's Christmas songs make me cry. Thank you. And that's one of the things that people talk about. Um, I mean, he is phenomenal so much so that Billboard has decided that he is one of the most American, like most successful recording act of the 1930s to this day, like 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and to now. That's a special kind of talent to be relevant for decades on end like that. Like that's almost 90 years. Exactly. Exactly. And he died in the 70s. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh, my gosh. That's insane. And so he had 10 um, top 10 box office movies. He sang four Academy Award winning songs. Um, I mean, 
there have been surveys to see how many tickets have sold just because of his name. He is barely behind Clark Gable. Um, I mean, it's, it's insane how much money his name is worth. And his single song, White Christmas, song that everyone knows by him, when it was first written in 1954, that year it grossed $30 million. Currently, $286 billion. For inflation? Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> that is one hell of an That is one hell of a career, dude. Like, that's Isn't insane. That insane? In, I did not in, know any of that. Crazy. He's received 23 gold and platinum records. Um, he has done so much for music. I mean, even when record sales were low, because you have to think about what was going on back in the 50s and things like that. Um, I mean, he started 23 Billboard hits. He's included hits with lots of duets, including the Andrew Sisters, um, Frank Sinatra. He's gone on to sing lots of uh, with lots of different people as well. Um, and he was given one of the first Grammy Lifetime Achievement Awards back in 1962. And like I said, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame for radio and popular music because of what he did to help with radio and with movies um, production value. And even after he died, he has received awards. In 2007, he was inducted into the Hit Parade Hall of Fame. And in 2008, he was inducted into the Western Music Hall of Fame, which is almost 30 years after he died, guys. That's incredible. Isn't that crazy? It's insane to me. It's insane to me. So his whole family is set. Um, So, I mean... Even though like doing research, and of course I looked on like biography.com because I really wanted to learn more about him as a person. There's a lot of different things that you can look up as him. But when you look at what he's done um, for music, what he's done for movies, what he's done just in the industry, he's an amazing person. And he died doing something that he loved. He died in Spain playing golf. He had a heart attack when he was playing golf. And because of that, there is a golf scholarship that they offer to this day in his name. So like I said, Bing did cover this song by Frank Sinatra. Some of the other people who I thought were kind of interesting that covered this were, of course, um, Michael Bluble, um, Bob Dylan. There have been a lot of other people who have covered it, but those were two of the main names. Of course, Barry Manilow has covered it. Um, one of the more fun people who I thought covered it, which was a very interesting take, and I hope you can find it, is Willie Nelson. Ooh, challenge accepted. Please find that one. So yeah, and so as the song is playing, Courtney is walking amongst all of her teens who have turned against her. They're throwing their corsages, they're throwing whatever they can at her, they're cursing at her, and when she gets to the end of the line, there's Julie who's telling her to smile pretty. And she takes a Polaroid of her with her makeup a mess, her hair a mess. And then we quickly go to the high school yearbook and we see that very picture of Courtney posted as the prom queen and the movie ends. And it is just perfect. 
Yeah, I I remember um, when I would watch this. I was a kid. This was this part made me actually kind of laugh because as she's like she's crying and she's going through the crowd, and if I'm not mistaken, it's like slow motion. It is, yeah, and so she's like going through the crowd, and everyone's like throwing corsages at her and screaming, and then you hear a guy in slow motion. He's like, "Motherfucker!" <laughs> yes. And it always cracked me up. And I would just always rewind that part. <laughs> the whole scene is hilarious. Um, so that is the end of my movie, guys. Some of my favorite things about this movie is, like I said, it is a very dark movie. This is not kind of like your regular teen, she's all that movie. But what I love about this movie is the person who designed all their costumes, they used all of these amazing vintage clothing that's in these beautiful, bright, poppy colors. And it's just such this awesome, um, you know, it just perfectly matches, like, not matches, it perfectly contradicts each other. And I love that. So that's one of my favorite things. And I did find a couple of fun facts that I wanted to share. And of course, Lisa R. One of mine, there is the Rocky Horror Picture Show reference, which of course I love. The um, investigator in this movie is played by Pam Greer, who in this film stated that she was in charge of her own hair, which was very important to her. And she put three wigs together to film this film. Um, this movie was originally supposed to be a horror film. But then he decided to switch it over to a dark comedy. Um, Judy Greer, who does play Fern slash Violet, actually said that when she was dressed as Fern and kind of that nerdy body, nobody paid attention to her. But the second she dressed as Violet, everybody was in the palm of her hand, which I thought it just it matches how society is, right? Like we care more about looks than we should. Yeah, I definitely think that, um, I mean, people are just naturally uh, more intrigued by things that are pretty and shiny, as opposed to things that are kind of frumpy and uh, that blend in. Yeah. If that's fair. And like someone like Fern, who, yeah, she wore like big sweaters and her hair mm-hmm. covered her face and she didn't brush her hair, Apple like she bangs. didn't wear makeup. Yeah. She had really big bangs and a really little face. Like yeah. she, it. I'm not like she didn't. She didn't put a whole lot of effort. Um, like she kind of just blended into the background. Um, and so that's yeah. It's that is very much a reflection of like how society is and how how people are drawn to certain things and not to others. Exactly. Exactly. Um, like I mentioned, Marilyn Manson does play the creepy guy, and that's only because he was engaged to Rose McGowan at this time. Several of the members who played Elizabeth's family were either in Carrie or The Rage, Carrie 2, which Judy Greer also starred in. Um, Darren Stein specifically chose older actresses because he wanted to play um, homage to Greece and Carrie, and the father of um, Foxy is played by none other than Kennedy in Greece, who sings, I think we're alone now. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be anyone around. Yes, Jeff Conway. Yes. 
Love which him. I love. Yes, exactly. Um, so guys, that ends my movie Jawbreaker, and I hope I did great for our twentieth episode. Yay! No, yeah, that was awesome. I love that movie. I haven't seen it in forever, but I'm remembering it as you talk, and it's so it's such a nostalgic trip. For sure. Right. Okay. So I'm so glad to hear you say that because, like I said, I was kind of worried about this movie because when I asked several people, they were like, oh, no, I haven't seen that movie. There was like one person out of 20 who had seen it. And I was a little upset. Yeah. I remember, like, with my sister, I don't know if she had seen it in theaters or maybe she just, like, she thought the cover looked cool. I don't know why she bought it, but I remember I was intrigued by it. Because Rose McGowan had obviously been in Scream, mm-hmm. and Rebecca Gayhart had been in Urban Legend. Yes. And me being a big, I love teen movies and I love horror. And I thought this was kind of along the lines of, like you said, like it started off as a horror film. So that's kind of how I, like, I thought it had that kind of mood. Um, yeah. And so that's what intrigued me about it. Um, and I do remember loving the music in this film and the colors. It's Everything is very vibrant. Like even the movie poster, mm-hmm. uh, everything is just very, very vibrant uh, as far as like the color and the costumes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really aesthetically pleasing movie. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Like I said, all the costumes are fabulously done. All of the girls are in these like bright, purples and greens and blues and pinks and it's just so pretty to look at like Misa said um and it's it's just such a juxtaposition between what's happening with the murder and everything it's a it's a perfect perfect movie to me so I love it and I hope you guys enjoyed it yes yes gotta figure out where I can stream it (laughs) um yeah very good choice I love it so we're officially 20 yay live and almost like i'm sorry <laughs> stop saying that i just remember uh I, I remember one summer mtv had a concert for their 20th year and it was called mtv live and almost legal and like blink 182 played and stuff like that yeah that's so funny <laughs> that's all i can think of think of um girls gone wild for some reason which is not appropriate that's so. hilarious just for the record, guys, I am not recording this topless, and I do have pants on. Simpsons pants. Are you pants. sure? Yes, I have my we're Simpsons on, We are not on Zoom, so I can't confirm. No, we're not on Zoom. I don't want to be spied on. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, no, I am, I am, I'm in my pajamas. I'm in what I've slept in for the last three days, so. I don't have the effort to take off my pants. That's, that's, I don't have the energy. No energy. <laughs> anyway guys uh, is there anything else you want to add no I'm good I'm good I hope you guys watch it if you haven't seen either of our movies The Wrestler Jawbreakers they're both amazing movies they match the mood that everyone around the world is in yeah man it's uh, I know that it's uh, I know you have to look at the bright side of life and you have to find your silver linings and shit but you can also be honest with yourself and you can take time to sulk and be sad because the truth is that things suck for real Uh, and (laughs) I needed a good cry and I needed something that was going to match my insides and yeah I think I think we I think we went dark for sure (laughs) um but luckily they both have amazing soundtracks which you guys 
can listen to when I add them to our playlist on Spotify. Check out our blog for all the video clips and audio. And you can find us on Spotify, Podbean, Apple, Google, all the things. Minus title. Yeah, fuck title. Um, you can see our Instagram and find our clues at Hey Soundtrack City. Ooh, and just to kind of foreshadow for episode 21, whether Misa and I are reunited and it feels so good, we have something special for you guys for episode 21 because we are legal. <laughs> yes, so we're going to be 21 drinking age. <laughs> um, should, should we say what it is now or should we just keep it going? Um, we can go ahead and say. Okay. Um, yeah, so we decided that uh, for episode 21, we are going to do something a little different. We're going to take a bit of a swerve, and we are each going to take a TV show and cover the soundtrack. I am so excited. I yeah. already know mine. Yeah, I know mine too. It's it's going to be an interesting change. It'll be a, It'll be a new challenge to find info on music used in TV. I think, um, but I'm excited. It's gonna, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be fun to rewatch one of my favorite TV shows and like take notes and see it from an objective point of view. So I know I can't wait. Much excite. So anyway, guys, we are looking forward to that episode. We hope you are looking forward to that episode. Uh, tune into our Instagram, Hey Soundtrack City, to find clues for our 21st episode choices. Oh my gosh, it's almost like it's our birthday. Like, I feel like we should really celebrate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I'm not that optimistic. (laughs) Um, But we could definitely do some shots that day. Perfect. Yes, I'm down. I'm down. And also, guys, you know, um, after our 21st birthday, Misa and I have been, you know, kind of planning and collaborating, of course, and we have lots of fun things planned, even though we are in corona season and you know even though things are kind of unknown we are staying as positive and optimistic as possible and you know planning lots of fun things for the podcast and we just really appreciate you guys support through all of this just like I said again if you guys have not watched either of these movies the wrestler oh my god it's amazing please go watch it then watch it again same thing for jawbreaker cult classic both of these are just phenomenal movies and just one of those movies that I feel like you need to watch before you die right yeah I would say so I would say Jawbreaker is one of those movies where like if you've seen like obviously Mean Girls and not another teen movie and then you watch Jawbreaker you're gonna realize where a lot of those elements and a lot of those parody scenes came from and I think you're gonna really not only appreciate those movies more, but that's gonna make you love Jawbreaker because that was kind of the origin. Um, oh, for sure. Then you're gonna want to go back and watch Heather's because that even that was even before that. And I even recommend I would say Clueless. Clueless to me is like the squeaky clean Jawbreaker. Um, oh my gosh! So yeah. it's just it should lead you down a nice rabbit hole of '90s teen films, and you cannot go wrong with teen films like I love teen films I love that genre it's it's one of my like not guilty guilty pleasures <laughs> <laughs> um and then yeah the wrestler whether or not you're a fan of wrestling 
whether or not you're a fan of Mickey Rourke, like it's it's such a great film about redemption and just yeah, just a tragic, tragic love story. <laughs> I think um, it's also almost relatable to just anybody, whether you're in acting or theater, because I mean, at least I feel this way. We kind of put on different masks depending on who we're talking to. Yeah. And playing different roles. And I feel like Randy completely embodies that depending on where he was in his situation. Yeah, definitely. And like, there's that quote that says like, you know, there's the way you are by yourself. There's the way you are with your friends. There's the way you are with your family. There's the way you are with like your lover, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't really be sure which one is the real you because your environment can change you and your environment can force you to make adjustments you know what I mean yeah for sure I think for everyone absolutely so two wonderful movies we hope you guys enjoyed episode 20 Woo-woo. 21 coming at you soon wash your hands wear your masks <laughs> <laughs> yeah guys no excuses now the fabric stores are open and like even like Music artists and artists are creating like custom masks now that you can buy. So you should be able to find a mask. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, guys, stay safe out there. Um, if you're listening from Texas, don't forget it is mandatory that you wear your mask. Um, other places I'm not really sure of, but just stay safe, guys. Make smart choices. Yeah, so try not to get the coronavirus. Okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, bye.